Seven days to the start of spring and we've got a nor'easter on the way. It should bring a rain-soaked snow and high winds and we should be in the thick of it this time tomorrow. We'll have the updated forecast and a look at how the area is preparing coming up on this Monday, March 13th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Silicon Valley Bank is now under federal regulation after the biggest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis, and some startups it funded are now struggling to pay employees. So we assume we can do this payroll. The question is, after this, we don't know yet. Today, President Biden gave the go-ahead to a scaled-down version of ConocoPhillips' $8 billion plan to drill in the National Petroleum Reserve. Proponents say the project will lower oil prices. Environmental advocates say it'll worsen climate change. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden says Americans can be confident the money they put in the bank is safe. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the president spoke after the high-profile collapse of two regional banks in California and New York. Federal officials have taken extraordinary steps to prop up the banking sector following the failure of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday and Signature Bank over the weekend. Depositors at both banks will get all their money back, not just the quarter million dollars that's usually insured, and the Federal Reserve has promised to lend money to other banks so they can cover withdrawals without having to sell assets at fire sale prices. President Biden announced the moves in an effort to reassure bank customers and prevent any additional bank runs. Every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Biden stressed that managers of the failed banks will be fired and that no taxpayer money will be used to pay off depositors. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Like the United States, other governments are attempting to calm fears about a possible replay of the last global financial meltdown following SVB's collapse last week. The Bank of England and the U.K. Treasury facilitated a deal to have London-based HSBC acquire Silicon Valley Bank's U.K. arm for one pound, which is just over one dollar. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak tells ITV that the U.K.'s banks are well capitalized, that liquidity is strong, and that customer deposits will be protected. But he says it will not be at the expense of taxpayers, a message similar to President Biden's message today. Sunak is in California, where he's to meet with his U.S. and Australian counterparts about a nuclear-powered submarine deal. Headed to San Diego, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan spoke to reporters about another matter, securing the release of Americans detained in Iran. All we can do is be as straightforward as possible, and there is no deal at this time. We continue to engage the Iranians to try to get the unjustly detained Americans home as soon as humanly possible, but I just can't predict when that will be. Separately, the Iranian government reportedly says the Supreme Leader plans to pardon more than 22,000 protesters arrested during recent anti-government demonstrations. A United Nations climate meeting kicks off today in Switzerland. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports scientists from around the world are finalizing a major climate science report. This report is the last piece of the UN's comprehensive summary of climate science. It will present the most important knowledge about how quickly the Earth is heating up and options for curbing greenhouse gas emissions and addressing the effects of climate change. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke as the meeting got underway. It could not come at a more pivotal time. Our world is at the crossroads, and our planet is in the crosshairs. Dozens of scientists and representatives from governments around the world will finalize the report this week and release it to the public on March 20th. Rebecca Hersher reporting. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. One of the biggest storms of the winter is at our doorstep. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyes has details on a nor'easter that is just hours away. A significant coastal storm will bring impacts to the region tonight through the first part of Wednesday. Rain arrives this evening and continues tonight, mixing with snow well inland. The rain snow line collapses east tomorrow, changing the rain to snow from midday to early afternoon. And it'll come down hard for several hours, making travel treacherous, especially tomorrow evening. Snow accumulation 3 to 6 inches in Boston and for Metro West, a little less on the south shore to Cape Cod and Cape Ann. The jackpot 6 to 10 inches north and west of the city with 10 to 18 in central Massachusetts to southwest New New Hampshire. The wind will gust to 60 miles per hour at the coast tomorrow and tomorrow night. Isolated stronger gusts will result in damage and expect widespread minor coastal flooding and erosion. Electric utilities are preparing for possible power outages. The nor'easters, wet snow and strong winds could take down trees and power lines. Eversource and National Grid say they've lined up extra crews to respond. The city of Revere is taking precautions for the mix of snow and possible coastal flooding. Chris Cheramella is the construction supervisor for Revere. Right now, we've got crews out cleaning the catch basins off. When the snow starts to come, we'll start pre-treating the roads probably about an hour before the snow falls. Terramella says backup generators are in place at the city's drain stations so they can keep working if the power does go out. Another major story we're following today is the closing of the Silicon Valley Bank. Massachusetts officials say they've been working since last week to try to lessen the impact on the Massachusetts economy. A large part of the state's economy relies on venture firms, startups, and life sciences. And Silicon Valley Bank did a lot of business in those areas. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. Economic Development Secretary Yvonne Howe says she started hearing rumblings from the startup community Thursday night that something was happening with the bank. She says after the feds closed the bank, she spent the bulk of the weekend on calls with various stakeholders, as well as the state's congressional delegation and legislative leaders to coordinate a strategy. As for the solvency of other banks in the Bay State, how is confident they're in good shape? They are a different business model, so they are much more sound in a lot of ways. I mean, not to say Silicon Valley Bank wasn't sound, but Silicon Valley Bank had a very different model that was much higher risk because they targeted startups and venture firms. Howe says that the fact the FDIC is insuring all of Silicon Valley Bank's deposits comes as a great relief. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The storm starts up as rain tonight, then the snow hits late tomorrow or tomorrow early afternoon. The blizzard should reach its peak tomorrow afternoon into evening, so a tough commute. We could get three to six inches accumulation on the ground, six to ten west and north, and up to a foot to a foot and a half in Worcester County and lower New Hampshire. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Carnegie Corporation of New York. Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's a documentary making the rounds at screenings around the country that raises serious questions about the safety of millions of children in America. It's a film in the style of a public service announcement called Sextortion, the Hidden Pandemic. But as we're about to hear, NPR has found the documentary could leave viewers with an exaggerated sense of the risk. And experts on child sex abuse and human trafficking fear this first impression could lead to misconceptions about these very serious crimes. Before we continue, a quick note of warning. This next story is about the subject of child abuse, but it does not contain descriptions of abuse or explicit language. Now, what this documentary called Sextortion suggests 
is that strangers on the internet are targeting potentially millions of minors into sharing sexually revealing pictures and videos and often extorting them for money. And in 2020, that number jumped up to 21.7 million cybertip line reports received. In the past seven years that I've been working here, the increase that we've seen and the trends that we've seen is definitely sextortion. That's a clip from the film. It was made in cooperation with several law enforcement agencies. Here's Erin Burke, an agent with Homeland Security Investigations, who was featured in the film. She's speaking at last year's Santa Barbara International Film Festival. This is a, a issue that is happening every single day in every single city across the world, and we're just trying to fight it. It's gotten a lot of play from local TV news as well. Here's a Fox affiliate in San Diego. A special screening of sex torsion, the hidden pandemic, is happening this Thursday. Hard to even watch that. Mm. It's so infuriating. But when NPR's Lisa Hagen started digging into the film, she found some questionable claims and filmmakers who had not gotten much scrutiny from the government agencies who jumped on the bandwagon. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ari. Start by describing what some of the concerns about this documentary are. Like, how common are these crimes actually and how common does the film make them out to be? So with any kind of sex crimes, especially involving minors, underreporting is always going to be a problem. And crime researchers will tell you that there's no quality evidence-based statistics on this stuff. One safety alert from the FBI put the number of minor victims in the U.S. at 3,000 last year. And that's a lot of kids. And a dozen cases of those were linked to suicide. But watching this film, experts I talk to worry people are going to walk away believing child sextortion cases number in the millions, which is exactly what one of the filmmakers told people when she got that question at a screening. Here's Maria Peek. When you first face this kind of crime, you have a natural aversion to it. But then you realize, oh, my gosh, this could be happening. Well, at first we thought thousands. Now we know it's millions of children. So what is our responsibility as a filmmakers? It, our responsibility is to investigate it and maybe to say, uh, show it to people in the best kind of way that it's not exploitive but educational. So my reporting found that millions is just not backed up by evidence. The film also contains some highly disputed claims about addiction and autism from one of the featured experts. And it also doesn't include any discussion of something researchers told me was really important. Just over half of the reported instances of sextortion involve someone the victim knows. Stranger danger is what's emphasized in this film. If anyone wants more detailed reporting on this, there's a deep dive on our website, npr.org. So those are the claims that the film makes. Tell us more about how the film was produced, who was behind it. Yeah, so that was my question, especially seeing federal officials promoting it. So I took a quick trip over to Google. I looked up the directors, and what I saw was the last feature film they'd made was a collaboration with a very notorious British conspiracy theorist. He has been banned from entering the EU, and all this really got me wondering about the reach this film was having. So let's listen to some of your reporting about that. We want to get this movie all over the world. And we want it in schools. We want it in classrooms. We want it with teachers. We want it in churches. We want it with parents and grandparents. And we want it with young people. That's the film's executive producer, Opal Singleton, at the premiere at the University of Southern California last fall. The film's creators are a married couple, Stephen and Maria Peake. They both have master's degrees in film and TV from Regent University, 
a conservative Christian university. And since their sextortion film launched, they say they've gotten more than 100 requests for local screenings. Here's Stephen at the premiere. This is my fourth feature documentary, and it almost the end of each one, I have someone who will come up at an event and say, thank you so much for making this movie because I've been trying to explain this to my friends for years, but now I can just sit them down and say, shut up and watch this for an hour and a half, <laughs> right? The Peaks say their work is journalism and that they're particular about the stories they tell. Stephen says those stories are often about heroes overcoming obstacles for a greater cause. The last documentary they directed, edited, and produced in 2019 is called Renegade, the life story of David Icke. It's an admiring look at a man who's popularized theories that alien reptoids control world events through elites like the British royals and wealthy Jewish families. His numerous books describe anti-Semitic conspiracy theories behind the Holocaust, September 11th attacks, vaccines, and more. Here's Ike describing his work in the film. If you look at the history of the world, it's renegades, by that definition, that are the only people that have ever changed anything. Martin Luther King was a renegade. Gandhi was a renegade. As Ike continues, images of Nikola Tesla, Marie Curie, and Malcolm X flash across the screen. The film itself doesn't make any anti-Semitic claims, but it also never challenges Ike about any of his well-established beliefs. When I interviewed the filmmakers, Stephen Peake said this. I feel, you know, uh, very good about what that movie became. And sometimes people will look at him and say, well, some people say this and some people say that. And I was like, well, have you watched the movie? Because there's nothing... Uh, controversial in the film itself. The Peaks spent a year with Ike, who was the film's executive producer. And Stephen Peake said they had never heard Ike say anything anti-Semitic, so they didn't include anything about those beliefs in their movie. He said they wouldn't have made the film if Ike had said anything anti-Semitic. There's no reason to believe that the Peaks adhere to Ike's worldview, but in a statement to NPR, the Southern Poverty Law Center cautioned against trusting any journalism that isn't honest about Ike. So how did these filmmakers wind up working with federal and local officials to make a film about sex crimes against children? The project has been a longtime dream of Opal Singleton, the executive producer. She heads a nonprofit in Southern California that educates police and the public about child exploitation. Singleton says she chose the peaks based on in-depth research and another film they'd made about competitive dance. And she says she didn't know anything about their collaboration with David Icke. I've not ever seen anything like that. Uh, I did, you know, see some of their previous. It was like I Dream of Dance, and it was very healthy and like that. And quite frankly, I'm very pleased with what they've done with uh, this particular subject. I pressed Singleton about the filmmaker's use of frightening statistics without much context. I don't really care about your numbers, okay? Right. What I care about is this is very real, it's happening, and it's happening a lot. And I thought, quite frankly, that Stephen and Maria did a great job at telling the story. But good luck to you. I don't agree with what you're doing. Reporting from NPR's Lisa Hagen, who is still with us, um, 
you know, part of your beat is covering conspiracy theories and people who believe in them. And there seem to be certain threads of that running through this story. Draw them out for us. What does this film have to do with conspiracy theories? So let's set aside David Icke and that film entirely. The violation of children and kidnapping them has always played a really central role in conspiracy theories. You see that in anti-Semitism from centuries ago, satanic panic stuff from the 1980s, and today in narratives like QAnon. There's a good reason for that. These are human taboos. They're horrible, damaging. But people who work on these issues with survivors and law enforcement say overhyped claims about strangers or child sex rings can lead to people missing far more common forms of child sex abuse because they're looking for the wrong threats. I talked to this lawyer, Erin Albright. She's a consultant who trains human trafficking tax forces for the Department of Justice. And she says child sex crimes are very complex problems. They need a super cautious approach. And she worries about coverage like this lingering with an audience that's learning about a crime for the first time. If they're coming to the documentary with maybe a little bit of background on crimes against children and, and maybe they know that like kidnapping tends to happen more, it's like more familial and maybe they can see through it. But the majority of the public isn't. So I do think that it has a lot of power. Lisa, a lot of prominent law enforcement officials and nonprofits are featured in this film. When you've approached them with your reporting, how have they reacted? Right. The filmmakers list the Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security as partners and claim the agency's unsealed case files for them. But while one U.S. attorney did give the filmmakers an interview about a case she prosecuted, the Department of Justice told us they did not officially partner with the filmmakers. They also denied the Peaks characterization that the case files were unsealed for them. The case in this film was never sealed. As for Department of Homeland Security or Immigration's Customs Enforcement, we haven't gotten agency responses. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children said they will vet their media partners more carefully going forward. One spokesman told us they didn't see why they'd partner with them again. Uh, but overall, they feel like none of the issues we flagged outweigh the good that the film could do. They feel like it's good work. That's NPR's Lisa Hagen. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Dow fell for a fifth day. It dropped just over a quarter percent. The S&P lost 0.15 percent. The Nasdaq gained ground, though. It picked up almost a half percent. Details on Marketplace starting at 6.30. Cambridge-based Moderna is expanding to the West Coast. The COVID vaccine maker announced Friday it plans to open new offices in San Francisco and Seattle. The locations will work on gene mapping and development of new technology to help scale its business. Moderna is working to produce vaccines for a wider variety of illnesses. It plans to add 2,000 jobs worldwide this year. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, tax lawyers committed to your most taxing matters. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. 
In the forecast, the calm before the storm now. Rain arrives tonight. Stormy weather's not too far behind. Late tomorrow morning, rain morphs into snow. Snow should be pushed by a powerful wind. The core of the storm comes tomorrow afternoon and evening, when some areas should get as much as an inch of snowfall an hour. Winds could knock down power lines and... Driving could be especially bad around this time tomorrow with low visibility. Some snow showers could stick around into Wednesday. By that time, we should have accumulations about three to six inches in Boston, less on the South Shore, more north and west of the city, somewhere around six to ten inches. The most snow could be in Worcester and southwest New Hampshire, maybe tough to shovel, wet and sticky, but really good for making snowmen. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Inspire future generations with an education degree from Leslie University. Learn more at leslie.edu. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. Repair work that was set to start today on the Sagamore Bridge over the Cape Cod Canal has been postponed. The Army Corps of Engineers says the critical maintenance work will start next Monday instead. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. China's annual session of parliament ended today. President Xi Jinping secured a third term and stacked the government with allies, including a new premier. But as NPR's John Ruich reports, it's unclear if Li Chang's loyalty is an asset or a liability. The story of Li Chang's rise goes back two decades. He was working in his home province of Zhejiang next to Shanghai. Xi Jinping was the provincial Communist Party secretary, the boss, and Li became his chief of staff, a role in which... He is the enforcer or go-between the party secretary of the province and all the subordinate units. A critical job, says Victor Xi, a specialist in elite Chinese politics at the University of California, San Diego. Xi Jinping was on his way up, but fighting factional struggles in Zhejiang. Li stood by his side. At that time, there were sort of two camps in the province. And so Xi Jinping's trust of Li Chang might have started in this period of relatively intense conflict. That apparent trust grew. Li got promotions and was soon governor of the province. Along the way, he developed a reputation as a champion of private business. Here he is at an internet conference in 2014. People who can innovate are the most scarce and valuable resource in the world today. We not only encourage Zhejiang people to start their own businesses, but also welcome anyone with a dream to start their own business here. In 2016, Li was promoted to party chief of neighboring Jiangsu province, and the following year to Shanghai, where he put a cherry on top of his pro-business bona fides. He brought Tesla into the city. That's Jörg Wutke, president of the European Chamber of Commerce in China. He says Li gave Tesla the green light to open the first wholly foreign-owned car company in China, which was a big deal when it happened in 2019. He enriched the supply chain. Now 20% of all the NEVs in Germany come from China, mostly Tesla. So he managed to establish a company in Shanghai that exports cars to Germany. I mean, that's quite a feat. But then came the pandemic. When Omicron hit China last winter, Li tried to handle the Shanghai outbreak with a scalpel to keep the economy afloat. But case numbers kept rising, and analysts say Xi Jinping eventually made him use a sledgehammer. Welcome back. On the 27th, after having reported asymptomatic infections of over 3,000, Shanghai is locking down the city. The lockdown that state TV broadcast was referring to was a mess from the start. 
At one point, Lee was confronted by agitated residents who were confined to a housing compound he was visiting. Supply chains broke down, and some people in China's most cosmopolitan city ran out of food. Anger boiled over, as in this video online of people scuffling with police in white hazmat suits. Through it all, Lee was steadfast in carrying out Xi's wishes. His lockdown, which was initially supposed to run for nine days, stretched into a two-month ordeal. Jorg Wutka again. He displayed this loyalty, which I think earned him the top job in the state council. That being the job of premier, which he was given this weekend. Cheng Li is with the Brookings Institution. He tracks the careers of Chinese officials, and he says after the lockdown, Xi Jinping had to expend significant political capital to keep Li's career alive. There must be some reason other than uh, just loyalty. I think Xi Jinping wants to send a message. A message, he says, not just that Xi trusts him, but that he wants a capable lieutenant in charge of the economy. At a press conference in Beijing on Monday, Li addressed both, pledging his loyalty to Xi and to strengthening the economy. Our government will further build a market-oriented, rule-of-law-based international business environment, giving equal treatment of all types of enterprises. But Victor Xi of UC San Diego says there's still a big lingering question. Which of the 63-year-old Li's instincts will we see more of? You know, whether... It will be his, you know, his own belief in the market, in private entrepreneurship, or whether it's going to be his reflex to always carry out uh, instructions from his patron. In the end, it may not be his call. She is the man in charge. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. Today, the Biden administration approved a massive new oil drilling project in Alaska. It's known as the Willow Project. Environmental advocates say greenlighting it violates the president's climate goals and that new protections to limit or block future drilling in the Arctic are not enough. Liz Ruskin with Alaska Public Media joins me now. And Liz, there's there's a lot going on here. Start with just helping me understand the Willow Project, what it actually is. This is an $8 billion plan. Right. And what the Biden administration approved amounts to more than 200 wells in northwest Alaska. It's an area the size of Indiana that's called the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska. Uh, ConocoPhillips has had leases there since 1999. The scale of the project is a bit smaller than what the company proposed, but it would still produce as much as 180,000 barrels a day. Uh, Alaska's congressional delegation is celebrating. So are the state's largest and most powerful Alaska Native organizations. They say this project means jobs and revenues that will sustain the region and their indigenous culture for years to come. So a lot of people celebrating, but it sounds like environmental groups are not among them. What are they saying? Well... Everyone expects that they'll file a lawsuit to challenge this decision. Um, They're angry and dismayed. Um, Climate advocates are especially focused on the uh, significant amount of greenhouse gas emissions that will come from the oil produced at Willow. I talked to Carlin Ichok. He's the Alaska director for the Wilderness Society. And he says this new oil will make it even harder to transition to renewable energy. It's just taking steps backwards at a time when we need this administration to make every leasing and permitting decision through the lens of a comprehensive plan to make public lands 
part of the climate solution? The project has a lot of support on the north slope of Alaska, but there's um, significant opposition from the city and tribe of Nuwixit. That's um, a small community closest to where Willow would be developed. Um, I do want to note the Arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet. What, what do people who, who live there, Alaskans who support the Willow Project, say about the climate impact of the project? Well, I asked Alaska Congresswoman Mary Peltola exactly that. She believes human-caused climate change is a huge problem plaguing Alaska. But she says the state needs Willow to make the transition to a renewable fuel economy and just to fund government services. Yes, I agree. There is a climate crisis, but the whole world can't tell Alaska to shutter its business until the world has has come up with solutions. I should mention that this uh, green light for Willow comes less than 24 hours after the administration announced new limits on drilling in the Western Arctic. Hmm, that's interesting. Briefly, Liz, what are the limits? They would stiffen protection on uh, sensitive lands in the National Petroleum Reserve and mm -hmm. Uh, also close the last bit of the Arctic Ocean that's under federal control uh, to oil development. Right. Almost every environmental group I've heard from says that this trade-off, allowing a massive oil project to move forward while limiting future development on millions be worth of it. acres of Arctic right. land. Okay, Liz Ruskin with Alaska Public Media. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include the Gardner Museum, Experience the art and travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner, who traveled the world a century apart. GardnerMuseum.org And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is trying to reassure Americans that the money they have in banks is safe after two large banks that cater primarily to the tech industry collapsed. Regulators have shut down Silicon Valley Bank as well as Signature Bank and said they would protect all deposits. That's done little, though, to shore up confidence today in the financial system. NPR's David Gura says this bank failure is different from the crisis caused by the housing bubble 15 years ago. 
It's not a bailout in the traditional sense, like what we saw back in 2008. You have the government here being very emphatic that the folks that they are giving a life raft to are those who are depositors at these institutions. There's a lot of nuance there. I think the administration is very cognizant of that. You heard the president really going to great pains to emphasize the fact that this is something different and that taxpayers aren't paying for this, aren't bearing the brunt of it. But I think that will be lost on a lot of people who see you know, a government institution here extending a lifeline to commercial enterprises and to wealthy depositors. That's NPR's David Gura. A major nor'easter is hitting parts of the northeast tonight through Wednesday morning. Forecasters say some regions could see up to three feet of snow. Ava Pukach of member station WRVO reports from New York. She says they're declaring a state of emergency. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says power outages are expected across the state. Heavy, dense snow means one thing. It's going to take down the wires. There's no way around it. When you have snow that's 50% heavier than normal, this is not the light, fluffy, pretty Christmas snow. This is going to come down like a brick. While the state is no stranger to snowy weather, Hochul says she wants to make sure complacency does not set in as the storm presents dangerous and potentially deadly road conditions. State officials urge people to stay off the roads and work from home if they can. For NPR News, I'm Ava Pukach in Syracuse. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A nor'easter is at our doorstep and could disrupt travel in the area. The Massachusetts Steamship Authority says at least some ferries between Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket will be canceled tomorrow and Wednesday. The high winds are a concern there. Over at Logan Airport, officials say passengers should check with their airline about the status of their flights. We'll have the full forecast coming up. The fallout from the Silicon Valley bank failure is being felt well beyond the high-tech world. Many Boston-area nonprofits had accounts with the bank. That includes charter schools. WBOR's Beth Healy has our story. Owen Stearns is chief executive of Excel Academy Charter Schools. They run schools in East Boston, Chelsea, and Rhode Island. He says he's relieved the government is guaranteeing Excel's deposits, more than a million dollars. But they have loans with the bank, too and concerns about what banks to trust. I think we're all right now on a very steep learning curve, doing our best to get smarter, diversify, and putting money in safer instruments. At the end of the day, kids are impacted by all of this. More than a dozen charter schools in the Boston area landed with Silicon Valley Bank after a bank merger in 2021. If Silicon Valley Bank is acquired, charter schools will still face a lot of financial questions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. Arlington public school officials are responding after a racist and homophobic graffiti was found at the high school. The principal told families about the incident in a letter over the weekend. The graffiti was visible for most of the day in a bathroom Wednesday before school officials were made aware of it. The incident was reported to Arlington police and the city's Human Rights Commission. It's 435 and we have the forecast live from Danielle Noyce coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a degree that helps students translate data insights into dynamic business models. bc.edu slash analytics. This winter's been pretty skimpy on the snow, but apparently it's trying to make up for that in the next 36, 48 hours or so because we have a nor'easter on the way. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us for an update on what we can expect. Danielle, the storm sounds like it's going to pretty much take its time passing through and uh, won't be a quick hit. It will not, Lisa. This is going to be a longer duration event, a multifaceted storm with rain, snow, wind, and waves. This nor'easter is going to have a little bit of everything over the next couple of days for New England. 
making up for lost time. Um, how is it going to evolve, though? When does it start? So here's the thing. We have some rain showers out there right now. The storm is honestly still in its developing stages. It's going to rapidly intensify south of us later on tonight and pass somewhere over Cape Cod and be a pretty strong storm during the day tomorrow. What that means is it will drag in enough warm air that we're actually going to be rain most of tonight and even into the first part of tomorrow in eastern Massachusetts. The rain snow line will probably dance somewhere around you know, Worcester back and forth a little bit. And then as the storm kind of shifts away just a little brings in enough cold air, the rain will change to snow through the midday to early afternoon from west to east. So I do expect a flip over and some flip-flopping at the coastline tomorrow afternoon. I'd say the height of the storm is tomorrow afternoon and evening for many of us, especially inland. Snowfall rates one to two inches per hour will be possible with blowing and drifting snow at times. When you say inland, uh, where are you talking about? Definitely north and west of Boston. So I think at the coast and for the city itself, we'll flip to snow, but there may still be some rain mixed in and the road temperatures will be mild enough. It won't have an impact at first. Outside of 495, especially on north and west of Boston, that's where we're talking about the worst uh, driving and impact in terms of snowfall. Different story, the closer you get to the coast for the wind impacts. Yeah, the wind you say is going to be a hallmark of the storm. How, How strong are you expecting winds to be? It certainly is, especially at the coast. So we've got high wind wa- uh, watches that will be converted to warnings coming up at the coastline. I expect some gusts 50 to 60 miles per hour, uh, and I think those will be pretty numerous. It's not out of the question that we get a gust up to 70 miles per hour. I think the greatest chance of that happening would be you know, somewhere like Gloucester, or the tip of Cape Ann, and then the outer Cape, which is closest to the storm center. Uh, either way, I think it's enough that we're going to see some pockets of damage and outages because of the wind at the coast. And then uh, kind of on the reverse side of that, the, the snow is going to be wet and pasty, so it's going to cling to everything. So especially where we have over four, five, six inches north and west of Boston, even higher amounts, um, some outages will be likely in those areas because of the wet, pasty nature of the snow. Okay, why don't you give us those accumulation uh, figures right now, as you see it, at least at Absolutely. this point. Absolutely. So I think that a lot of eastern Massachusetts will end up like three to six inches, and that includes for the city of Boston. It'll probably be a little bit less for eastern Essex County, the immediate coast of the south shore of the Cape, maybe coding to an inch or two. Boston, I'd put around, let's say, four inches, four or five, give or take right now. Um, But when it starts to flip, the good news is, you know, I think the roads will be okay for a period. It's when it comes down harder uh, that I think things will get a little bit slick. Now, north and west of Boston, particularly outside of 128 and then 495, the amounts are going to ramp up. So, you know, we're talking six to eight and then 10 over a foot from Worcester with elevation up to Route 2 and southwest New Hampshire. We'll probably see some you know, 15, 16 inch amounts in some communities out in the central part of the state from this. And so when should it wind down by and um, how long might it stick around based on temperatures? So I do think that the back edge of the snow, the steadiest snow will wind down tomorrow, late evening and overnight. There'll still be some snow around, but it won't be as intense. It'll be lighter. Um, At the coast on Wednesday, there's probably still going to be some scattered snow showers and pockets of snow dancing around. I don't expect a big impact, um, but until the storm kind of fully pulls away from us at the coast, there may still be some lingering snow showers on Wednesday. And you mentioned kind of, you know, the lingering effects. I think we get some melting and refreeze 
the next several days. So there'll be some continual need for treatment just because we get a little bit of melting during the day with temperatures above freezing and actually in the 40s and then dipping into the 20s and 30s overnight. So, so there'll be some icy patches to keep an eye out for kind of each morning as you wake up. I'd like to say it's refreshing and sounds like winter, but it just sounds like winter. <laughs> March nor'easter, nothing like it, right? <laughs> WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyes, thanks a lot. Thanks, Lisa. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Just how wild a ride have the last few days been for customers of Silicon Valley Bank? That is the bank that collapsed on Friday and is now under the control of federal regulators. It's the biggest bank failure since the global financial crisis in 2008. Ripple effects are hitting markets worldwide. Now, President Biden says customers of Silicon Valley Bank are safe, that they will have full access to their deposits with the government, backstopping billions in uninsured money. We're going to talk now with one of those customers. Kamal Kapadia is co-founder of Terra.do. That is a climate education startup in California. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me, Mary Louise. So you had all your money, is that correct? All your company's money at SVB? That is correct. Why did you choose this bank? So SVB is the go-to bank for startups. Mm -hmm. It's been a long-standing partner of the tech industry. And in our past experience as founders, it's been a very helpful and understanding banker for scenarios where nothing is stable from a financial perspective, which is our daily reality as startups. Yeah. Well, and last week was certainly the polar opposite of stable. What (laughs) happens Friday, which is the day the bank actually collapsed? Oh, yes. So we find out this shocking news and all our founders and our chief business officer were on a Zoom call. We're trying to get into the bank account and we can see the account, but you can't do anything like that. Everything is frozen. And then uh, like literally frozen on your computer, you're trying to move the mouse and nothing's happening. Yeah, you can't do anything then basically the whole site goes down. Uh, we First of all, we don't even know if we can access our money, but we need another bank account. That was our first thought. So I literally like got in my car and drove to downtown Berkeley. And I was like, which are the mainstream banks? Like maybe the big mainstream banks are the most reliable place to open a new account. So I ran into Chase. They didn't have a manager available at the time. So I literally like stood on the corner, like in downtown Berkeley, and I saw a city bank, I ran there, they were not open. So then I ran to Bank of America and they were able to open an account for me. But then the next thing was, could we actually get access to our money? So, you know, we are a small startup. We have 30 employees, we have to make payroll. Now we knew that 250K was insured by FDIC. This is the maximum limit that the government had insured for, go on. Correct, but we had more money than that in our account. And on the other side, we couldn't even take our customers' money. This is a a big time for payments to come in and we couldn't take payments into our bank account. Essentially all the money was frozen coming in or going out. You mentioned you've got 30 employees. Talk to me about payroll. Can you pay them? How's that working? 
So we got lucky that we just processed the last payroll, like literally, you know, maybe 12 hours before this all went down. So as far as we know, that's going to go through the payroll company did send a slightly worrying message as well about having to like check on things, but at least at our end, that money had left the account. So we assume we can do this payroll. The question is after this, we, we don't know yet. So many unknowns. It sounds like the last few days have been so chaotic. You may not have had any time to process what's going on beyond your immediate situation and trying to, to staunch the, the hemorrhaging. But broadly speaking, how nervous are you feeling? I mean, this is not the only big bank collapsed and then seized by regulators just in the last several days. I'm not trying to focus on the long term at the moment. I'm really trying to stay present and focus on this this week because it's kind of all we know, you know, today and tomorrow and see how it plays out. But if I pause to really think about it, I am nervous. I, I'm scared. I'm sure everybody is feeling that way. Like, you know, even this account at Bank of America, is it safe? One of the discussions we've been having is do we need multiple bank accounts? How do we know where we should be setting up these bank accounts? Because the memories of the last financial crisis are fairly fresh still. So, yep, it's it's a scary time. Kamal Kapadia, co-founder of Terra.do and a customer of Silicon Valley Bank, which collapsed on Friday. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. I really appreciate this conversation. President Biden is at a naval base in San Diego today to announce a U.S. submarine deal with Australia. But this is not just another business-as-usual usual military contract. Britain is also part of the deal, which is seen as a broader U.S. effort to work with allies to counter China. For more, we're joined by NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie. And Greg, let's just start with the basics here. What is in this deal and why is it so significant? Well, the U.S. and Britain are selling nuclear-powered attack submarines to Australia. This group has a kind of unwieldy acronym of AUKUS for Australia, U.K., U.S., and it'll take a decade or maybe two for all of these submarines to be built and deployed. Now, we should note the only other time the U.S. shared cutting-edge nuclear submarine technology was with Britain way back in the 1950s. And President Biden is staging this high-profile meeting at uh, Naval Base Point Loma in San Diego to drive home the point that the U.S. is working with partners for a stronger security presence in Asia, and it's a message clearly directed at a rising China. Okay, so put this into some context for us. How does this deal fit in with what the administration is doing when it comes to Asia more broadly? Well, when Biden was vice president a decade ago, uh, the Obama administration started talking about the need for the U.S. to pivot to Asia because of Asia's just increasingly important global role. And these efforts were really moving in fits and starts, but the Biden administration has really taken some concrete steps. Uh, In addition to this submarine deal, you're now hearing more about another group called the Quad, which is the U.S., Australia, Japan, and India. It's non-military. It's a diplomatic alliance to counter China. And in just the past month or so, the U.S. announced it would have access to more military bases in the Philippines, which is right next door to China. Right. And so how is China responding to all of this? 
Well, just have a look at the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. He delivered a, a big speech today in China's legislature. He said China should pay, play a larger role in international affairs, including global security systems. And these kinds of remarks are coming with a much sharper edge these days. Just, just last week, uh, President Xi said the U.S. was trying to contain and circle and suppress China and that China will resist this. Also, President Xi plans to go to Russia soon, perhaps next week, to meet with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. The U.S. believes China is considering but has not yet decided whether it will supply Russia with weapons in its war to Ukraine, again creating some tension with the West. And Greg, have we now reached the point where we can say that the U.S. and China are now in a Cold War? Well, you are increasingly hearing that assessment. Uh, but it often comes with uh, caveats. The, the U.S. and China clearly have very different visions of what the international system should look like. Uh, competition and rivalry are an absolute certainty. The hope is it doesn't become outright confrontation. Now, one of the key caveats is that the U.S. and China remain deeply intertwined, mostly through trade. And it may sound surprising, but U.S.-China trade hit an all-time high last year. Okay. So right now, we're seeing both rising tensions and rising trade. NPR's Greg Myrie, thanks. My pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR checking sports. Red Sox got spanked today. They lost to the Blue Jays in spring training 16 to 3. More sports coming right up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Lots of sports news out of Foxborough today. Patriots tight end Jonu Smith is heading to Atlanta. ESPN reports the Falcons traded Smith for a 2023 seventh-round pick. Pats are also re-signing cornerback Jonathan Jones. They agreed to a two-year deal today. Celtics are coming off back-to-back wins as they visit the Houston Rockets tonight. Game time is 8 o'clock. Salts are reportedly losing one of their assistant coaches. The league source tells the Boston Globe that Damon Stoudemire will leave Boston to become the head basketball coach at Georgia Tech. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. And Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. Michaela Schifrin has won more Alpine Skiing World Cup races than any skier ever. With 87 career wins, she's now the greatest skier of all time. But don't call her the goat. The first thing I think about when anyone says goat is I just get a picture of a baby goat screaming in my head. We'll talk to Schifrin about her achievements on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Britain's National Health Service is living through what some see as the worst crisis in its history. It's plagued by staff shortages and record-breaking delays. Junior doctors this week started a three-day strike, the latest in a wave of protests by health workers. All of this is fueling debate about the future of Britain's system of free universal health care. NPR's Philip Reeves reports. 
Jenny Hudson is an ambulance paramedic in the west of England. She joined the service a decade ago because of something that happened in her childhood. When I was about 15, I had a seizure and the paramedics who treated me were absolutely fantastic. And it just made me realise that I wanted to do something that would make a difference to people and would help people. Hudson's finding it difficult to make a difference these days because of the crisis gripping Britain's National Health Service, or NHS. It's heartbreaking. This is not why I joined this job. We meet on a picket line on a recent cold and blustery day outside the city of Bristol. Ambulance workers were holding a one-day strike over pay, but Hudson's here for other reasons. For me personally, it's more about just really bringing to light the state of the NHS. This winter, Hudson watched a tragedy unfold. Hospitals were jammed. That's partly because some patients, although well enough to be discharged, couldn't be released because of a lack of community care. Long lines of ambulances carrying incoming patients formed outside hospitals, sometimes waiting for up to 14 hours, she says. It means that, you know, whilst ever we're sat waiting with that patient, there are other patients in the community who have got nobody to help them and people are dying waiting for us. This is far from what the British had in mind when they created the NHS back in 1948. Britain was still digging out from under the wreckage of the Second World War when Prime Minister Clement Attlee made this speech. Tomorrow, there will come into operation the most comprehensive system of social security ever introduced into any country. These were the most radical social changes in modern British history. The scheme gives a complete cover for health by pooling the nation's resources and paying the bill collectively. It's not dependent on insurance. Everyone is eligible. It was regarded as astonishing, and the place where it was regarded as absolutely the most astonishing was the United States. Professor Roberta Bivins is an expert in the history of Britain's National Health Service. In fact, it was seen as something quite fearsome and terrifying, or alternately as a great experiment. Bivins is originally from the United States, but she's based at the University of Warwick in England and is now a British citizen. She remembers her first visit to a British family doctor years ago. She tried to pay. The doctor waved away her money. Bivins found this... Mind-blowing. The word is mind-blowing, and, and my mind was blown. Bivins says Attlee and his leftist Labour government were on a mission to create a far healthier population. There was a real belief that uh, investing in health was investing in prosperity, and also that if you addressed the causes of ill health, that you would eventually get rid of the need for a full-on national health service. 75 years on, Britain's National Health Service is more full-on than ever. As for prosperity... There are a lot of NHS workers who are actually now dependent on food banks. Olga Leachwaters is a nurse and a union official. She says nurses are struggling with low pay, surging living costs and staff shortages. In England, there are more than 40,000 vacancies for registered nurses. She worries about the future. We need our NHS. This is something that we, we love, we adore. The NHS is like, you know, it's like Buckingham Palace. That love was on full view in the COVID pandemic. Britons stood on their doorsteps applauding an institution that many revere as the embodiment of national values.
Most want to keep it, says Max Warner of the Institute for Fiscal Studies in London. I think the key fundamentals of care that's free at the point of use and funded by general taxation is one that's very popular among the British public. That's despite the huge bite it takes out of the national budget. It's by far the biggest public service, much larger, for example, than education or defence. Roughly 10% of Britain's GDP goes on health. That's less than France, Germany and the US, says Warner. Britain's real terms health spending actually goes up every year, but under the last decade of Conservative government, the rate of increase went down. There's growing pressure on the system. It's a really serious crisis at the moment, and part of what makes it so difficult to talk about and understand is there's pressures from all different parts of the system, and then they feed into different parts. Those parts include some of Britain's most far-flung areas. This is Lostwithiel, a small country town in Cornwall on Britain's southwestern tip. It has a salmon river, a couple of pubs, a 12th century church, and a ruined medieval castle. Justin Hendricks has been the local doctor here for 16 years. He's sitting in a cafe, like Doc Martin. He knows almost everyone. I get to know families, I see babies being born, I see elderly grandmothers, you know, you walk in somewhere and they say, hi Doc, how are you? You know, thanks for seeing my dad last night. Hendricks works with one other family doctor. That doctor's retiring, so Hendricks advertised for a replacement. No one applied. Hendricks says England doesn't have enough doctors. Because of pressure, because of more paperwork, less time with your patient, uh, more rules. Some are retiring early, he says. Others are leaving for better paid jobs overseas. It absolutely breaks my heart. And I, at this point, I don't know how it's going to be better. Because I run the community choir here, I, I quite like rewriting the lyrics to well-known songs or writing silly songs. That's Emma Mansfield. Desperate to lure a doctor to town, Hendrix asked her to make a video, literally singing its praises. So we went through all of the different songs that were related to health or doctors that would be familiar. And then we found Nina Simone's Ain't Got No, I've Got Life. We've got a river and a beach, we hold events amongst the trees. Hundreds of locals, firefighters, butchers, bakers, joined in. It's a special place to live. If to us you want to give, you can negotiate your terms. If you'll keep us free of terms, drop us a line. The town may now find its doctor, but the country's problems are more fundamental than that. Britons are getting older. Diabetes, dementia and obesity are rising. Roberta Bivens, that professor whose mind was blown by the NHS, thinks it's time to return to the vision of its founders in 1948. Which said, your exchange, British people, for getting health care that's free at the point of need is that you have to help yourselves be healthy. Some on the political right say tax-funded universal health care is unsustainable. Many Britons fear there are plans to privatise it. That's easier said than done in a country that loves its health service, but not its politicians. Philip Reeves, NPR News, Loswithiel, England. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie. 
dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at Fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. This is NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today, the markets were rickety after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, Barney Frank, the former Massachusetts congressman who helped write sweeping new rules after the global financial crisis, speaks out about this bank failure. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Patterson, New Jersey is trying to fight the grip of fentanyl by passing harsher laws for users. Critics say those laws don't address more serious problems. We cannot law enforcement our way out of this fentanyl epidemic. And the forecast is going to be messy tonight through Wednesday morning. You'll get the forecast and hear how the region is preparing. And with an unpredictable weather system plowing down, Worcester's Department of Public Works says prepare for the worst and hope for the best. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Despite the recent failures of two big regional banks, the message from President Joe Biden this morning was the nation's banking sector is safe. The president seeking to convey calm after federal regulators moved in to shutter Silicon Valley Bank and later Signature Bank. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. The president said losses will not be borne by taxpayers, but instead by fees banks paid into the deposit insurance fund. In both cases, the financial institutions that cater to the tech industry were subject to bank runs that related to their collapse. The government has taken emergency measures to backstop depositors, though stockholders in both banks are being wiped out. Investors, meanwhile, continue to sell off bank stocks today. The Biden administration is approving a major oil and gas development project on Alaska's North Slope. NPR's Nathan Rott reports the controversial project is expected to draw lawsuits. The massive oil drilling project known as Willow has the potential to produce hundreds of millions of gallons of crude oil over 30 years. Climate conservation and indigenous groups have been fighting the project proposed by oil giant ConocoPhillips for years and are expected to continue those efforts. Many are expressing frustration that approval for the project is coming from an administration that has made addressing climate change one of its core goals. The science is exceptionally clear that to slow harmful warming and avoid worst-case climate scenarios, the world must move away from fossil fuel development and use quickly. Nathan Rott, 
NPR News. The commander of Ukraine's ground forces says mercenaries working with the Russians are trying to advance into the center of Bakhmut, a city in eastern Ukraine. From Kiev, NPR's Joanna Kakissis has the latest. Fighters from the Wagner Group, a private army founded by a Russian oligarch, already control the eastern half of the city. Oleksandr Sirsky, who leads Ukraine's ground forces, said many Wagner fighters are dying as they try to break through Ukrainian defenses to reach the center of Bakhmut. Moot. He told reporters Ukrainians are not retreating. In his nightly video address on Sunday, President Volodymyr Zelensky said Ukrainian forces had killed more than 1,100 Russian fighters in Bakhmut in the last week. Bakhmut once had a population of 70,000. Now a few hundred civilians remain huddled in basements to survive. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. President Biden is in California today. The president, among other things, scheduled to announce a deal with two of America's closest allies to provide nuclear-powered attack submarines to Australia. The agreement is being done in conjunction with the U.K. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow down 90 points. The Nasdaq closed up 49 points. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A nor'easter is about to blow into the region. WBUR's meteorologist Daniel Noy says it's now just a few hours away. Well, a strengthening ocean storm is going to bring rain, snow, wind, and waves to the region, arriving this evening and lasting until early Wednesday. We'll start as rain at first and then transition to snow from west to east during the late morning to early afternoon tomorrow. The most intense snow falls during the afternoon and evening, though we may still mix with some rain at times, flip-flopping in eastern Massachusetts. Travel will be tough. Snow totals 3 to 6 inches in Boston. Less on the South Shore in Cape Cod and Cape Ann. More north and west of the city, where 6 to 8 inches is likely, ramping up to 10 to 18 inches, especially outside of 495 in the central part of the state to southwest New Hampshire. Damaging wind gusts to 60 miles per hour at the coast, with isolated gusts to 70 during the day and into tomorrow night. Widespread minor coastal flooding and erosion. That's Daniel Noyes. The storm is likely to bring conditions that can be a recipe for power outages. As WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, electrical utilities in the state have been preparing for several days. Craig Hallstrom of Eversource says the company has been closely monitoring the weather forecast since last week. Because this storm is so big, it's going to impact the region. And that can make it difficult to get enough workers or repair equipment. But Hallstrom says Eversource has hired hundreds of -of out-of-state electrical crews, and set up teams that will be ready to respond to downed trees or other problems. The company has also set up mobile command and response vehicles. So we have a a pretty good contingent for the storm and, and we're ready. National Grid, the other major electric utility in Massachusetts, has also lined up extra workers to help respond to outages. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation want greater federal oversight of banks after the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Senator Elizabeth Warren says the failure of SVB and Signature Bank happened because Congress weakened financial rules five years ago. She says lawmakers should reverse that approach and give regulators power to claw back bonuses from bank executives. Congresswoman Diana Presley is requesting the House Financial Services Committee hold a hearing to investigate the SVB collapse. Again, the storm that is just about at our doorstep now starts as rain tonight, then the snow hits 
Late tomorrow morning or early tomorrow afternoon, the nor'easter should reach its peak tomorrow in the middle of the afternoon to the evening, right about this time uh, tomorrow, right about now this time tomorrow. So a tough commute could get about three to six inches accumulation on the ground in Boston, six to ten west and north, up to a foot to a foot and a half in Worcester County and in lower New Hampshire. 43 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Two banks have failed in the last few days. The federal government deemed both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank systemic risks to the financial system, and regulators moved to ensure depositors would be able to access their funds. Former Congressman Barney Frank is uniquely positioned to weigh in on these collapses. He served on the board of Signature Bank, passed signature legislation following the 2008 financial collapse, known as the Dodd-Frank Act, and he chaired the House Financial Services Committee and joins me now. Welcome. Thank you. In an op-ed for the New York Times, Senator Elizabeth Warren says that the recent bank failures, and I'm quoting here, are the direct result of leaders in Washington weakening the financial rules. And she is talking there specifically about the rollback of parts of your legislation, which was designed to avoid another financial crisis like the one in 2008. Those are rollbacks you supported. Are you having second thoughts about that now? No, I disagree. Um, I didn't like that whole bill because there were parts of it in the housing discrimination area, I didn't like. But no, I don't think there was any sign uh, that the rollback caused a problem. In the first place, the uh, regulator who took the lead in closing Signature Bank was the uh, financial regulator appointed for the state of New York. Um, their authority was in no way affected by the 2018 uh, increase in, in the level uh, of, of banks subject to the... Uh, close to supervision. Uh, so uh, the, whatever the regulator in New York decided to do could have been done before. Uh, secondly, I was on the board of Signature uh, both before and after right. the uh, change. And I can tell you personally, there was no diminution of regulation. 2018 didn't say no regulation or weak regulation. It said you wouldn't regulate a bank at $50 billion in assets the same way you would regulate a bank in several trillion. Uh, but they retain strong power to regulate. I think because uh-huh. of this problem with crypto, uh, the fact that, uh, and it starts, if you notice, with, with FTX, okay. uh, there was no problem for years. And I think this is the regulators, particularly, say, in New York, sending a message to banks, crypto is toxic, stay okay. away from it. And let me ask you about that. I'm curious here if you see more failures coming, given what you've just said, or was there something specific about Signature that made it vulnerable to a situation like this, which you were saying you believe is largely because of cryptocurrency, which some would consider a risky bet? No. Uh, in the first place, I think you're going to see what the uh, FDIC has done is to remove the two top operating offices of uh, signature and one semi-retired uh, officer and left everybody else in place. You're not going to see any significant change either in the personnel or the business model. I think particularly with the New York people in, in the lead, they were saying, stay away from crypto. Now, we were doing crypto. We were doing it in a responsible way, but I think they still wanted to send the message after uh, SVB in particular 
to, uh, to say out of crypto. If the federal government had announced on Friday the two things it announced today, a liquidity facility for banks that are suffering from runs and a uh, uh, backup for guaranteeing the deposits above 250, Signature wouldn't have had a problem. Mm, okay. Now, that is the one vulnerability we had. Signature is a business-oriented bank. We lend a lot to real estate, right. uh, housing, and that meant we had a lot of large deposits. And I argued back in 2010 that the 250 guarantee limit for businesses was way uh-huh. too small. And, uh, well, in fact, it, Democrats in this time lobbied hard to get that thing out. We've got to be able to have a bank put money enough to cover its payrolls. And I'm I know sorry, coming out of if this, I may, our time is short here, so I just want to jump in for one second. You know, President Biden has said that he wants to strengthen banking regulation so that failures like what we've just seen with these two banks are less likely. In the time that we have left, from your perch, do you think he is right? Not to do this. Uh, I don't know how much time is time left, but I don't like to be asked complicated questions and so no. But we have to do with it. Okay, in, uh, in, in, but do you a, think that the pre- sir? Do you think that the president is correct when he says he wants to strengthen these regulations to make these well, things? Well, I possible? want to. Yes, uh, first of all, I think we need to strengthen the regulations on crypto, not just in banking, but through the SEC. Secondly, I think it's important for the stability of the country uh, economically and for fairness to workers, not banks, to make sure that uh, companies can have insurance sufficient to cover their payrolls. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we need, I think, not just general banking regulations, okay. but we need specific regulation tightening up All right. crypto. That's and we're, the, we're going to have to leave I, it I there, former Congressman and former Signature Bank board member Barney Frank. Thank you. More than 110,000 people died of drug overdoses last year in the U.S. That's according to the CDC. Behind the deadly wave is fentanyl, a cheap and powerful synthetic opiate that is often mixed with other street drugs. Cities and states across the country have been trying to pass bills that would give fentanyl possession and trafficking harsher sentences. Activists have pushed back, saying further criminalization is the wrong approach to solving the addiction epidemic. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports. It's a cold winter night in Patterson, New Jersey. There's still snow on the ground from a recent storm, and on a corner, under the neon lights of a liquor store, a group of people are gathered. Some are homeless, many are opiate users who have had brushes with death. I just lost a good friend of mine right now. It, it hurts, it bothers, but when you get high, you know what you're doing. Rob DeMaria, a boyish young man, dimples and dark circles under his eyes, says he's been tapering off opiates. It got too scary for him, in part because of fentanyl. It's killing people, left to right. Yeah. Every day people dropping. Yeah, and that's why they don't get high alone. The rise in overdoses is happening across the country. In Virginia, it's now the leading cause of unnatural death. In Los Angeles last year, drugs laced with fentanyl were believed to be behind a wave of teenage deaths. It's called murder. That's Republican U.S. Senator Rick Scott from Florida. He's introduced 10 bills to combat fentanyl. One of them would seek federal murder charges for people who sell fentanyl that results in a deadly overdose. In an interview with NPR, Senator Scott said it's a no-brainer. You sell this stuff? and somebody dies, you should be, you're a murderer, and you ought to be in prison. 
and there is any question about it. This thinking is part of a larger trend. Cities and states across the country have been pushing for much harsher sentencing. In New Jersey, two bills are making their way through the legislature. One of them would make manufacturing and distributing five grams a first-degree crime. Advocates say that's a small enough amount to land people who are using in jail rather than get them help. Bree Azanedo is with Black Lives Matters Patterson. What's going to happen, there's going to be a lot of black and brown people in jail. Azanedo does harm reduction with a team. They deliver food, clothing and safe drug use supplies and naloxone for overdoses. Here, put on some socks. I'm going to give you this thing here. I'm just getting you the socks, okay? Azanedo moves with ease in this world in part because she's been here before. Her father was an addict in Patterson. He was the best dad I could have asked for. Um, Picked me up from Sweet Sixteens with my friends, would stop at on Street Street, would stop at the chicken store, would stop on Broadway, and just like, oh, I just got to go see someone real quick. Now I know what he was doing. When she was 18, he went to prison. She became head of the house. Prison may have saved him in the sense that he became sober, but it destroyed us as a family. Azanedo recently testified against the New Jersey legislature's fentanyl bills. She says it's a repeat of the war on drugs, which in the 80s and 90s filled jails and prisons disproportionately with black and brown people. That war is widely considered a failure. The U.S. still has a drug problem. I think all of us probably have a family member that's had either alcoholism problems or drug problems. That's U.S. Senator Rick Scott again. You know, we've got to continue to invest in ways to provide treatment. Um, but I, I don't think it's I don't think you can say, oh, I'm just going to do this one thing and it's going to solve the problem. It's basically you have to do all these things. And right now my son is out there in the street somewhere. Virginia Krieger's son is a math addict somewhere in Florida. Krieger is one of the co-founders of the group Lost Voices of Fentanyl. She's already lost a daughter to a fentanyl overdose. She says it's all well and good to not want to incarcerate people with addictions, but she lives in terror of losing another child and would frankly rather see him behind bars. He has almost died three times from fentanyl in meth. I would rather see my son in a jail cell than dead. Still, she wants more options than just locking him up. A more holistic approach that will go after the big-time fentanyl traffickers and will focus on helping folks like her son treat their addiction. She says the number of deaths just last year, over 100,000, means we need to be doing things differently. That's more than we lost during the 20-year Vietnam War. That, that, that should be an alarm. Most experts agree with Krieger. There's no doubt in my mind that law enforcement should be involved. There's no doubt in my mind that the court system should be involved. But we cannot law enforcement our way out of this fentanyl epidemic. Adam Scott Want is an assistant professor of public policy at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. It's a public health epidemic. We need to concentrate and focus on public health solutions in order to help people break their habits, break their addictions. Back in New Jersey, Bri Azanedo agrees. Incarceration is not the way out of this. You don't give us the funding, you don't give us the resources, you don't give us education, you just give us a jail. She knows. She sees this every day. She's lived through it. And like many affected by addiction and drug policy in America, she feels like we're in a loop, trying the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. 
Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New Jersey. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, why Wall Street remains worried about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the risk of contagion. Also, NPR's Eric Deggins looks back at the Oscar telecast last night, the historic wins and surprising snubs. The Dow fell for a fifth day today on Wall Street. It dropped just over a quarter percent. S&P lost 0.15 percent. The Nasdaq gained ground almost a half percent. The average price of gas in Massachusetts is two cents a gallon higher than it was last week. AAA Northeast says a gallon of gas today averages 3.29. That's still nine cents lower than a month ago, 18 cents lower than the national average. It's 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years on stage March 16th to 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, you can now do the same with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with a new WBUR app downloaded at the App Store today. And that way you can stay on top of the forecast at any time. We've got a mix of snow, rain, and wind on the way. The rain should arrive overnight tonight. And then tomorrow should turn over to snow late tomorrow morning or early in the afternoon. Lots of snow, heavy winds tomorrow afternoon and evening right about this time. Could have an accumulation eventually of about three to six inches in Boston, less on the south shore, more north and west of the city, somewhere around six to ten inches. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with The Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Just how much are working moms capable of? Sabrina Siddiqui took a pretty impressive crack at answering that on a recent trip to Ukraine with President Biden. Siddiqui is a White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal. She was one of two journalists asked to travel with Biden on a clandestine journey to mark the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion. Siddiqui is also a mom to nine-month-old Sophia. She's still breastfeeding. And her top question when she landed the assignment involving a long train journey into a war zone was, how will I pump? Sabrina Siddiqui, welcome. Thank you for having me. How did you learn this trip was happening and that you were being asked to go? Well, I was supposed to travel with President Biden to Poland and already anxious about leaving my daughter, Sophia, for the very first time. I, at this point, had literally never spent a single night away from her. Mm. And the thought of being overseas at all was really nerve wracking to me. Next thing on the Friday before, I was summoned to the White House 
for a meeting with then communications director Kate Bedingfield and Tamara Keith, the president of the White House Correspondents Association. And our own NPR correspondent, I have to I have to plug. Go on. Yes. And I was told that I would be one of two journalists going with President Biden on this secret trip to Ukraine and that we would be leaving the following night. And in that moment, it almost feels surreal. And there are many, many questions going through your head about how this trip is going to work, the logistics, the fact that the president's going into a war zone where the U.S. military doesn't control the situation on the ground. But all I could think of in that moment was, wow, I thought I was going on a really simple trip to Poland for two days. And now I don't know how I'm going to manage this trip with a baby at home. And really just how am I going to manage as a mom who is still breastfeeding and pumping? And now this has just become that much more logistically complicated. Right. Because you're you're not only going to be on a crazy deadline filing around the clock, but you need electricity to power that breast pump. And that's not a guarantee on a train headed into a war zone. It's not guaranteed by any measure, especially when you're being told that you will be spending 20 hours total on the train, 10 hours into Kiev. 10 hours out of Kiev. And I was told that there are outlets, but hey, there's no way we can guarantee that they work. Then I'm thinking, okay, maybe I can get one of those wireless rechargeable pumps. And then Kate Bedingfield, the White House communications director at this time, is saying, well, does it have Bluetooth? Because anything that's got Bluetooth is going to be confiscated. And some wireless pumps have Bluetooth so that you can connect to apps and track your pumping session. So now I'm like, I don't know if it has Bluetooth. And so there's this whole back and forth trying to figure out the logistics of the pump, which I was, was also extraordinary because there are many, many things that they're thinking of logistically in this unprecedented wartime visit. And now my pump is one of the topics <laughs> conversation. <laughs> it's up there with stressful things to deal with on work travel. And just to note for people who have never nursed a baby, this is not optional. It's not like you can just take a few days off pumping when you have a baby who's still nursing back at home. I just want to put that out there. Before we move on from this conversation, Kate Bedingfield, you mentioned Tamara Keith of NPR was also there in her role running the White House Correspondents Association. They're both working moms, I know. Um, how important is it to have other working moms in the room when, when decisions like who's going to go on this kind of trip get made? I feel like it made all the difference. And I was told that they were already having the conversation about my pumping logistics because they knew that I had just come back from maternity leave at the beginning of January and that I was pumping. And I couldn't help but wonder if it had been a conversation between a couple of men, would they have maybe just automatically ruled me out and thought, well, she's not going to be able to do this? Or maybe if I'm sitting in that meeting, are they going to say, look, like we just can't really accommodate this. There are many, many more important things we have to think about. Can you just work something out? Maybe there would have been a lot more of a fight, whereas with both Kate and Tam, the immediate response I got from them was, hey, we get it. We've been there. And that to me was so validating and yeah. just so vital because I'm really lucky that I had these two working moms advocating for me. I know that is not the case for most women. And I know how many women struggle with returning to work and not having the right infrastructure, resources, and support that they need in order to be able to pump and even just to make that transition. Yeah. So it made all the difference. You also had major support coming from your husband. You did get on the plane, you're headed into Ukraine, and you discover your husband had tucked a note in your travel bag saying what? Mm -hmm. My husband, Ali, he is extraordinary and so supportive. I, I don't think I would be able to make the trip without him and knowing that Sophia was in the best hands possible. But one thing that really does stand out is just being on the plane, rummaging through my purse, pulling out this note handwritten saying, hey, we're so proud of you. Sophia is going to be so proud of you one day. 
Um, you know, I was so anxious and it just enabled me to remember from where I'm able to derive my strength, to think about the passion I have for my career and just to know that, hey, you know, my being a mom doesn't come at the expense of my career. How did it actually work on the ground in Ukraine? You're having to pump, what, every every three hours or so. And then you're also having to figure out, okay, I've got this milk. I have to keep it cold so I can take it home to my baby. Yeah. You know, I was pumping on Air Force One about every three hours, pumping every three hours on the train. There's a time zone change too. And I had to just remember that my body's going to figure it out. But we were on the ground in Kyiv for about five hours. Um, that's a max that, you know, I, I, I could or should go. And so thankfully I was able to get by with that short break. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was also in a very fortunate position that I'm in this very bizarre and unusual uh, journey, but I'm traveling in this private secure capacity. So I was able to ask the attendants on Air Force One, hey, can you refrigerate my milk? And then this lovely Polish woman who spoke no English on the train who was looking after us, she had her phone. I didn't have mine. So, she, you know, using Google Translate, I arranged for her to keep the milk from the train in her <laughs> oh, fridge. Eventually, just all I need to do is get it to Warsaw where I can then put it in the custody of the hotel in their freezer. But, you know, I, I that's another place where I had to sort of think about how lucky I was to have these options available. Yeah. I know so many women have to pump and dump, which is just devastating, meaning pump the milk and dump it out because they're not going to be able to store it at the right temperature or get it back home. And that stuff is like liquid gold. You work so hard for it. Like you work so hard for it. And, you know, there's there's so much societal pressure that, frankly, there shouldn't be, but it impacts everyone, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally when it comes to breastfeeding and pumping. So I, I, I was, again, very lucky to be able to make it work in high highly unusual circumstances. Before I let you go, I want to circle back to that note that your husband tucked in your bag. Um, <laughs> how about how Sophia is going to be so proud of you someday? What do you want your daughter to take away from this trip one day when, when you can tell her about it? You know, I thought about her the entire time. I was standing there watching history unfold and all I'm thinking is, is she okay? I wonder how she is. Has she eaten? Has she slept? Where does she think I am? But then at some point, I also thought about just the extraordinary challenge that I've been presented with and the opportunity to really demonstrate to her that, hey, your mom was still able to do this. You know, for all the anxiety I had going into it, I was still able to do my job no differently than I would have, you know, before minus the pumping part and pull it all off. And so one day I just hope that if she has any takeaway from this trip, it's what working moms are capable of. Sabrina Siddiqui of the Wall Street Journal. She wrote about this for the journal in a piece headlined, How Will I Pump When Your First Work Trip After Maternity Leave Is to Ukraine with President Biden. Sabrina Siddiqui, thanks. Welcome home. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Join NPR All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro and me Sunday, March 26th at City Space for a conversation about Ari's new memoir and tales from his broadcast career. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. 43 degrees now, a mix of snow, rain and wind is on the way. We'll have a complete forecast just ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston. 
extensive slow zones, ceilings actually falling, the search for a new general manager behind Governor Healy's own deadline. The latest crises at the MBTA, reporters and transit advocates join us about this high stakes moment. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Bank stocks took a hit on Wall Street today after two large banks that primarily serve the tech industry were shut down by federal regulators after large groups of depositors withdrew their money over fears that the institutions could become insolvent. The Biden administration took emergency measures to backstop the financial system today, and President Biden promised Americans that the money they have in banks is safe. New York Governor Kathy Hochul expressed confidence and says the FDIC is now in charge of both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The management has changed. This was important. This is not a bailout of government taxpayer dollars. This is simply using fees that are assessed on all banks by the FDIC in such a time they would need them. So that money is there. It's not from the taxpayers, but also now there's new leadership. Some observers say the situation could cause the Fed to pull back on its pace of interest rate hikes that are shaking Wall Street. Lawmakers are urging the State Department, meanwhile, to warn travelers about pharmacies in Mexico that have been selling what appear to be prescription pain medication that may contain deadly fentanyl. NPR's Brian Mann has more on the story. The LA Times found pills sold in some Mexican pharmacies contain dangerous amounts of fentanyl and methamphetamines. At least one U.S. traveler reportedly died from fentanyl poisoning in Mexico after taking what appeared to be a safe pain medication. Senator Edward Markey of Massachusetts and Congressman David Trone of Maryland sent a letter to the State Department saying a public warning should be issued. They say contaminated medications could place unsuspecting U.S. tourist customers, some seeking to avoid high drug prices in the U.S., at risk of overdose and death. The State Department hasn't yet responded. Ryan Mann, NPR News. On Wall Street, stocks finished mixed today. The Dow lost 90 points, down about a quarter of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A March winter storm is expected within just a few hours. Here's WBUR's meteorologist, Daniel Noyce. Nor'easter is on the way. The storm will intensify and pass near Cape Cod tomorrow. We'll start as rain this evening, then transition to snow from west to east during the late morning to early afternoon tomorrow. It'll snow hard for a time tomorrow afternoon and evening. Inch per hour snowfall rates in spots, reduced visibility, tough travel. We may still mix with some rain and flip-flop at times in the city. The steady snow ends overnight, though some snow showers will linger into Wednesday. For Boston, three to six inches expected, less on the Cape, South Shore and Cape Ann, and more north and west of the city, six to ten inches from many there, 10 to 18 inches when you get out to Worcester and into southwest New Hampshire. It's a wet, pasty snow too, so outages will be an issue. It'll be tough to clean up too. The wind will howl at the coast, numerous gusts to 60 miles per hour, along with minor coastal flooding and erosion. That's meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is monitoring the timing of the nor'easter. She said in a press conference the city has not yet decided whether to cancel school, but it's watching the forecast closely. Many of our buses start getting on the roads for pickup and and dismissal time right around 1 p.m. So if it all kind of clusters then with uh, a lot of snow coming down fast and heavy winds, um, we're just monitoring that to see what will happen. 
The city is expected to make the call on school cancellation sometime later this evening. Mayor Wu has also asked construction companies to secure their equipment at sites in Boston due to the expected high winds. The mix of conditions in the forecast has Worcester officials preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. The city's Public Works Commissioner Jay Fink says the trouble is that the rain is expected to turn over into heavy rain. Because it starts off as a lighter rain, crews will have little chance to treat the roads with sand and salt. So those roads are going to be pretty slippery, uh, probably more so than you might see in a typical snowstorm. Fink says the city is dealing with a shortage of plow drivers, too. He says that means the cleanup could also take longer than usual. He's recommending that you stay off the roads tomorrow. Another major story we're following today is the closing of Silicon Valley Bank. Massachusetts officials say they've been working since last week to try to lessen the impact on the Massachusetts economy. A large part of the state's economy relies on venture firms, startups, and life sciences, and Silicon Valley Bank did a lot of business in those areas. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. Economic Development Secretary Yvonne Howe says she started hearing rumblings from the startup community Thursday night that something was happening with the bank. She says after the feds closed the bank, she spent the bulk of the weekend on calls with various stakeholders, as well as the state's congressional delegation and legislative leaders to coordinate a strategy. As for the solvency of other banks in the Bay State, how is confident they're in good shape? They are a different business model, so they are much more sound in a lot of ways. I mean, not to say Silicon Valley Bank wasn't sound, but Silicon Valley Bank had a very different model that was much higher risk because they targeted startups and venture firms. How says that the fact the FDIC is insuring all of Silicon Valley Bank's deposits comes as a great relief. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Once again, the forecast, the storm starts up as rain tonight, then wet snow in a big way late tomorrow morning or early afternoon. The nor'easter should reach its peak tomorrow afternoon into evening. This cautionary note, visibility tomorrow should be pretty low and the snow should be dense. So a tough commute. In Boston, we could get three to six inches accumulation on the ground, six to ten west and north, and up to a foot to a foot and a half in Worcester County and lower New Hampshire. This is 90.9 WBUR. 40 degrees now at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today, President Biden sought to assure Americans the banking system is safe after the government rescued customers of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Your deposits will be there when you need them. But Wall Street remains worried and shares of regional banks sank. NPR's David Gura joins me. And David, bank stocks going down, 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 down today. What's going on? Yeah, investors are concerned other banks could collapse. And just to recap quickly what's happened here, on Sunday, regulators announced they'd taken emergency measures to make sure all customers of those two banks you mentioned, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, could access their money. But despite that, shares fell of regional banks and banks that have a lot of deposits that are not insured by the FDIC, deposits that are larger than $250,000. Mm-hmm. First Republic Bank is one of those. It caters mainly to wealthy clients, tech companies. 
It's headquartered in uh, San Francisco, and its share price fell by more than 60 percent today. The Nasdaq temporarily halted trading of its shares shortly after the opening bell. Key Corp and Comerica were down about 25 percent each. Zions Bank Corporation of Salt Lake City was also down. Again, Mary Louise, after President Biden told Americans not to worry about the health of the banking system. Yeah, President Biden saying not to worry about the health of the banking system. Are we buying this? Is the banking system safe? Well, there's no indication other lenders are in financial trouble, but administration officials emphasize they're being vigilant. It's important to note that yesterday, the Federal Reserve said it's willing to provide loans to any other banks that encounter difficulties. But we've had three banks close in the span of one week. Silvergate Bank, which is known for lending to crypto companies, is winding down its operations and paying back deposits. Chris Katowski is a longtime bank analyst. He's with Oppenheimer, and he told me he's of the belief this is going to blow over, although it is going to take some time. He says, at their core, these companies are solid, and this is not a replay of the global financial crisis. If you think about the current problem, right, is not that these banks made a bunch of bad loans. The current problem is that maybe they bought a few too many government-backed securities. That's partly what led to Silicon Valley Bank's collapse. Normally, government bonds are among the safest investments around, but when interest rates rise really fast, as they have, that's not the case. Their value diminishes, and Silicon Valley Bank sold a big chunk of its bond portfolio at a $2 billion loss to keep up with demand for customer withdrawals. Okay, stay with that point for a second, the the Mm -hmm. customer withdrawals, because this is so interesting how the psychology of bank customers would contribute to what's going on. Yeah, what's driving this now is how people feel, and it is really hard to stop a bank run once it gets going. People start making emotional decisions. Matthew Richardson is a finance professor at the NYU Stern School of Business, and he explained the psychology to me of bank customers at a moment like this. Now, let's take some of these other banks. Maybe they're much healthier, but at some point, I don't care so much about the health of the bank. I'm concerned about what the other depositors are going to do. You're looking to the right and to the left, and that's what's difficult here, Mary Louise. No matter how healthy banks are, if depositors feel skittish and take their money out, things can really snowball. It leads to even more fear about the bank, even if the Fed is offering short-term funding as it is. Okay, so give me a roadmap for the next few days. What should we What should we be watching for? Yeah, we're going to see if this blows over, but I'll, I'll note this is playing out at a very tricky moment because investors already felt like the market is weakening. You know, before this... Wall Street's preoccupation was with trying to figure out the Fed's next move. You and I have talked about this an awful lot. Mm. If recent economic data, which have come in stronger than expected, will propel it to raise interest rates more aggressively to fight high inflation. What's happened in recent days could make them warier. And a discussion is underway about whether there needs to be new banking regulations. And the president has resolved to get to the bottom of what led to these bank collapses that we've seen over the last week. And PR's David Gura. Thank you, David. Thanks, Mary Louise. We have more now on the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Many founders and employees of startup companies in greater Boston are breathing a sigh of relief. That's after the U.S. Treasury's announcement that customers of the failed bank could access all their funds today. But actually getting that money is still a process. People lined up outside the bank's branches in Newton, Wellesley, and Boston today before their doors opened this morning. WBR's Walter Wuthman caught up with some local startup founders who say they still don't feel out of danger. Jonathan Levine is the co-founder and CEO of Folio Materials. His company makes sustainable paper products. He spent this morning trying to access his online account at Silicon Valley Bank, which holds all of his young company's money. Um, I cannot log into my SCV account. Oh, wait, wait, the website, the website works again. I don't know. I tried, like, 
error occurred while processing your request. So that did not work. Levine is trying to transfer his money to a new bank, all while his bills are stacking up. And I have 10 emails in my box saying, you know, hey, this is the credit card company. We can't pay, you know, your monthly whatever. Hey, payroll company. Hey, we can't process this. But Levine feels better after the Biden administration's announcement last night that people's deposits will be safe. I'm not panicking. But if two days from now they haven't figured out some of the administration, then I'm going to start worrying. Yvonne Howe is the Massachusetts Secretary of Economic Development. She says the Treasury's Sunday night action to secure deposits was important in avoiding further panic. We are definitely in better shape than we were before that announcement. Having said that, I've been on the phone all day today already with people in the different communities. I don't think we're out of the woods yet. House says state officials are remaining vigilant. We are still very carefully monitoring the situation, and we are parallel processing to say, if for some reason things get worse this week, how are we going to step in as a state? Many feel regulators helped avoid a catastrophic financial meltdown. But for some startup founders like Allison Byers, there's a lingering nervousness. Byers heads the startup Scroobius, which helps other startups pitch investors. She says she was able to access her account at Silicon Valley Bank this morning. But the ordeal isn't over. Community, that it does not erase the stress that has happened over the past few days. And it does not prevent the stress that is happening now and will happen upcoming. Byers already juggles a thousand tasks, from developing her product to making payroll. But now she says she has something else to think about whether her bank account might all of a sudden, through no fault of her own, cease to exist. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Last night, the Academy Awards made history in all kinds of ways, particularly for Michelle Yeoh, who became the first Asian woman to win a Best Actress Oscar in the more than 90-year history of the awards. For all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight. This is proof that dreams do come true. The film she starred in, Everything Everywhere All at Once, made its own history. As the first science fiction movie to win Best Picture, it is also the most awarded Best Picture winner in more than a decade, winning seven Oscars total. Here to talk about the Oscars as a TV event is NPR TV critic and media analyst Eric Deggins. Hey there. Hi. So, Eric, at a time when award shows are really struggling to hold on to audiences on TV, how was the Oscars as a TV show? Do you think it was entertaining enough to engage people? Well, this year's Oscars had to accomplish something that's pretty difficult. I mean, it had to be distinctive enough to make people watch it, but it had to be conventional enough to feel like a return to normalcy after that disastrous Oscars last year where Will Smith slapped Chris Rock on stage. And I yeah, I think they managed that. I mean, many of the Oscar wins were emotional. They were poignant. Host Jimmy Kimmel was pretty good at poking fun without crossing a line to being cruel. And of course, he had to joke about the slap, mm-hmm. but he focused a lot of his jokes on the Oscar Academy itself. L- let's listen to one of them. If anyone in this theater commits an act of violence at any point during the show, you will be awarded the Oscar for Best Actor <laughs> and permitted to give a 19-minute long speech. <laughs> Which is kind of what I wrote Seriously. when it happened, so... <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, a lot of today's coverage of the awards points out the diversity of the winners. But as you wrote on NPR.org, that diversity comes with some important caveats, right? Yeah. And but first, you know, let's give all the flowers to Michelle Yeoh because she finally has an Oscar to top her impressive career in film and TV. She's become the first Asian woman to win that award. And Asian performers and filmmakers made some incredible strides this year, including Kei Hui Kwan's win as Best Supporting Actor alongside castmate Michelle Yeoh playing the kind of role that he said wasn't available to Asian men when he first started his career as a child actor decades ago. And Ruth Carter became the first black woman to win two Oscars, winning last night for the costume design in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, after winning in 2019 for the costume design in the original Black Panther movie. But beyond the fact that we really shouldn't be seeing these kind of basic firsts in 2023, there were still problems. I mean, among Oscar nominees, important work by black women was shut out. We still didn't see many Latino or Hispanic nominees or winners. It seems like Oscars just starting to reflect the ethnic diversity of the world. And too often, they're depending on one breakthrough film like Everything Everywhere All at Once to provide the bulk of the non-white winners. Yeah, so we know that in any award show, there are a lot more losers than winners. So, Eric, who got left out this year? Well, big blockbuster films like Avatar The Way of Water and Top Gun Maverick didn't do so well. They won uh, one award each for visual effects and sound, respectively. Um, legendary director Steven Spielberg, he was nominated for his most personal film yet, The Fablemans, his best director. He lost out to The Daniels, uh, Daniels uh, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert of Everything Everywhere All at Once. Wakanda Forever star Angela Bassett lost to Jamie Lee Curtis from Everything Everywhere. I think in the acting categories, perhaps voters like the idea of rewarding people who'd been fighting to stay in the business, from Brendan Fraser, who won Best Actor for The Whale, to Kei Hui Kwan, who left acting for many years and became a stunt performer. And those wins made for poignant stories, which is why we're talking about them today. That's Eric Deggins, NPR TV critic. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a new documentary on sexual crimes involving children is facing scrutiny about its credibility. That's still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Experience new heights with music by Mendelssohn and Mozart's first flute concerto, Friday at Jordan Hall, handelandhaydn.org. One of the biggest storms of winter is about to move in and take its time leaving. WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce has details on a nor'easter that is now just hours away. A significant coastal storm will bring impacts to the region tonight through the first part of Wednesday. Rain arrives this evening and continues tonight, mixing with snow well inland. The rain snow line collapses east tomorrow, changing the rain to snow from midday to early afternoon, and it'll come down hard for several hours, making travel treacherous, especially tomorrow evening. Snow accumulation 3 to 6 inches in Boston and for Metro West, a little less on the south shore to Cape Cod and Cape Ann. The jackpot 6 to 10 inches north and west of the city with 10 to 18 in central Massachusetts to southwest New Hampshire. The wind will gust to 60 miles per hour at the coast tomorrow and tomorrow night. Isolated stronger gusts will result in damage and expect widespread minor coastal flooding and erosion. 40 degrees now in the Boston area. By the way, if you're tired of winter, just remember the first official day of spring is a week from today. It's 549. 
WBUR supporters include Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Puerto Rican rapper Viano Antiano is ready to hit the road this spring. She'll perform her debut album, La Sustancia X, across Latin America and Europe. Her songs put femininity front and center, and they're breaking barriers in urbano music, as NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento reports. Villano Antillano, the Antillian villain, opens her record by casting a spell. But this is not the start of a quiet, gentle meditation. It's a party fueled by sex, drugs, swagger, and gender politics. I'm not an artist, I'm a movement, brags the 27-year-old Puerto Rican rapper. It's a bold statement to kick off her first full-length album. But as she's being hailed the first trans artist to make waves in Urbano, and with more than 4 million monthly listeners on Spotify, Villano Antillano knows that La Sustancia X is less of an introduction and more of a grand entrance. I feel like I also have a lot of like magic around me to draw from, you know? A lot of excellent music has been made in Puerto Rico. She grew up surrounded by that excellence, mainly salsa, reggaeton, and rock in español. But when it came time to find a sound of her own, she turned to rap, trap, and witty rhyme schemes. In Puerto Rico, we bend language a certain way, and in the Caribbean as a whole, we bend either Spanish or English or whatever language was imposed on us by colonization in very particular ways. Villano Antillano came up as an underground rapper in the Puerto Rican scene. She spent nearly three years working on her album, all while releasing carefully crafted collaborations with other queer and women artists like Young Miko, Pau Pau, and Reynao. But last year marked a turning point in Villano's career, especially when she worked with rising Argentinian producer Bizarrap. That performance has racked up over 187 million views on YouTube. Shortly after, Bad Bunny, the top-streamed artist in the world, invited Villano on stage to perform with him during a show in San Juan. Then, a few months ago, Villano released her magnum opus. She says much of the album is a testament to the way that she interacts with her femininity through her creative process. Part of that was starting hormone replacement therapy. I feel like I really became a better musician once I took steps that like 
close and me to my womanhood and my femininity. Soy una mujer llena de poder. Puedo decidir cómo puedo defender. Yo puedo matar, pero puedo comprender. Yo te puedo amar y te puedo someter. One of the standout songs on the album, Mujer, relishes in that connection. It's a collaboration with singer and composer Ile, who's been at the forefront of political protest music in Puerto Rico in recent years. I always like songs that make me want to dance, but at the same time they give me like something more. Mujer is a feminist rallying cry that centers women as both powerful and threatening. It calls out interpersonal and systemic violence in Puerto Rico. The human rights campaign reported that the island had the highest number of anti-trans fatalities in the U.S. in 2020. And for two years now, Puerto Rican Governor Pedro Pierluisi has declared a state of emergency over gender-based violence. The song ends on a somber note, a clip from a rally remembering victims killed in recent years. These names feel like names until like they're just not. There is someone that you actually knew. One of my closest friends was very close with a victim that's in, in the voice memo. Her name is said, and that touched me particularly because it's not just like me seeing it as a horrible news. It's me having to accompany, you know, a person who is going through deep grief. Throughout much of the album, Vijano is hardened to the world around her. She says a big part of that is having to navigate life as a woman and as a queer person. You get used to being defensive, to constantly looking out for yourself in the face of danger and hostility. She also knows she's breaking new ground. Music journalist Richard Villegas. We need to be upfront about the fact that seeing queer and trans people in reggaeton, in trap, in hip hop can still be seen as a novelty. Last summer, when Villano shared a kiss on stage with Dominican artist Okisha, they received vicious homophobic backlash, including death threats. So I ask her if it weighs on her to have to represent an entire community with her platform. Maybe she just wants to have fun and make music that feels good to her. But she says she chooses to see it as liberating. If nobody has done what I'm doing, then that means that there are no expectations and there is no rule book. I'm just making it as I go along. So you can't tell me how to bring queerness to the table because it's all I know. So I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do and I'm gonna do it very excellently. And so she celebrates queer tenderness, too. The last song on the album, Poli, is an ode to polyamory. She tells her lover she cares about him too much to deprive him of connecting with other people. Vijano will start performing these songs this month in Texas, Argentina, Colombia, Mexico, and later on in Spain. 
She says she's most excited to experience La Sustancia X with her fans in person. It's not just kids at a festival who know a song or two of me. It's, it's kids who are like seeing an artist that represents them and that kind of like makes them feel like they can really aspire to be anything they want. Like Villano Antillano, they can be confident in who they are and make sure everybody else knows it too. Isabela Gomez Sarmiento, NPR News. Nena mala no sabes amar, con los corazones solo sabes jugar. Chicos tontos te hicieron llorar, ahora con tu fuego tú lo vas a quemar. Nena mala no debes dejar que nadie se te acerque o te pueda quitar. Lo poco que te queda de un ser normal, los poderes que tú tienes son difíciles de hallar. Nena mala no sabes amar, con los corazones solo sabes jugar. Chicos tontos te hicieron llorar, ahora con tu fuego tú lo vas a quemar. Nena mala no debes dejar que nadie se te acerque o te pueda quitar. Lo poco que te queda de un ser normal, los poderes que tú tienes son difíciles de hallar. Reina, cruda, electrónica y la suda. Loa, musa, títeres que lenga tu san muerte. Sexo, deseo de lo perverso. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at RemotePC.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is WBUR. Lots of sports news coming out of Foxborough today. Patriots tight end Jonu Smith is headed to Atlanta. ESPN reports the Falcons traded Smith for a 2023 seventh-round pick. Pats are also re-signing cornerback Jonathan Jones. They agreed to a two-year deal today. Red Sox got blasted today. They lost to the Blue Jays in spring training 16-3. to Celtics are down in Houston to face the Rockets. Boston's looking for its third straight win, but will be shorthanded again. Three players will miss the game, including center Robert Williams. Meanwhile, the Celts may be saying goodbye to assistant coach Damon Stoudemire. The Boston Globe says he may become the head coach at Georgia Tech. This is WBUR. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A week from today, spring moves in. A few hours from now, winter packs one of its biggest punches of the season. It all starts as rain tonight, then a big blast of snow starts early tomorrow afternoon with wild winds that should stick around through the evening. It's Monday, March 13th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a new documentary claims that there is a surge of online sex crimes directed at children but the film is facing questions about its credibility. The filmmakers list the Department of Justice as partners. The Department of Justice told us they did not officially partner with the filmmakers. And in polls, former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are the top two candidates who Republicans want as their 2024 nominee. In dueling events in Iowa, they pitched themselves to voters. 
It's 6.01 News and the forecast are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The sudden collapse of two banks, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, is fueling calls on Capitol Hill for stricter federal regulation. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers are assessing how to proceed in the aftermath of the largest U.S. banking failure since the 2008 financial crisis. Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin tells CNN that Congress needs to take a look at banking regulations that were rolled back during the Trump administration. I think for us in Congress, we need to revisit some of the regulation that was loosened on these regional mid-sized banks uh, not so long ago. In 2018, lawmakers from both parties voted in favor of legislation that eased some of the regulations that were imposed on banks after the 2008 financial crisis. In the meantime, the Biden administration has taken aggressive steps to contain the damage from the shutdowns of both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including backstopping depositors' funds. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The New York jury was unable to reach a unanimous decision on whether to sentence to death an Islamist extremist who killed eight people using a speeding truck on a popular New York City bike path. Jurors telling a federal judge today they could not agree on whether Saifullah Saipov should be put to death for the October 2017 attack. A unanimous verdict is required for a death sentence, meaning Saipov will get an automatic life sentence. He was convicted in January of killing five Argentine tourists, two Americans, and a Belgian woman in the attack. Inspired by Islamist state group propaganda, Saipov drove a truck down a busy riverside path, running over cyclists before crashing into a school bus. Another 10 people in Minnesota are facing charges in connection with what the Justice Department has said is the nation's largest COVID-19 fraud scheme. As Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports, five dozen people are now alleged to have stolen a quarter of a billion dollars in taxpayer money. Federal prosecutors say the defendants used phony documents and shell companies to steal hundreds of millions of dollars meant for children in need. Minnesota U.S. Attorney Andy Luger says one woman claimed to have fed more than 2,500 children per day in Pelican Rapids, a northern Minnesota town of just 2,500 people. That means that she claims to be feeding everybody who lived in Pelican Rapids every day, whether they were children or not, whether they were needy or not. So far, six of the 60 people charged have pleaded guilty. Luger says investigators have seized nearly $67 million worth of real estate, vehicles, and other assets allegedly purchased with stolen taxpayer money. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. Illinois will become one of three states that will require employers to offer paid time off for any reason. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signing into law measure that will put the requirement into place effective next year. Mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 90 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Grab the shovel and hang on to your beanie. There's a northeaster or a nor'easter on the way. It's due to start tonight as rain morphs into heavy snow for most areas during the day tomorrow. Electric utilities are preparing for possible power outages. The nor'easter is heavy. Wet snow and strong winds could take down tree limbs and power lines. Eversource and National Grid say they've lined up extra crews to respond. Several school districts in Central Mass have decided to cancel classes for tomorrow. That includes Worcester, Southbridge, and Millbury. That area is expected to see some of the most snow. Further east, many districts have yet to announce their plans. That includes Boston. A few have indeed made the call. Lynn Public Schools will be closed tomorrow. Schools in Hull will have an early dismissal time. Revere is taking precautions for the mix of snow and possible coastal flooding. Chris Cheramella is construction supervisor for the city of Revere. 
Right now, we've got crews out cleaning the catch basins off. When the snow starts to come, we'll start pre-treating the roads probably about an hour before the snow falls. Charamella says that backup generators are in place at the city's drain stations so they can keep working if the power does go out. We'll have more in the forecast coming up. The fallout from the Silicon Valley bank failure is being felt well beyond the high-tech world. For many Boston-area nonprofits, they had accounts with the bank that includes charter schools. WBUR's Beth Healy has our story. Owen Stearns is chief executive of Excel Academy Charter Schools. They run schools in East Boston, Chelsea, and Rhode Island. He says he's relieved the government is guaranteeing Excel's deposits, more than a million dollars. But they have loans with the bank, too, and concerns about what banks to trust. I think we're all right now on a very steep learning curve, doing our best to get smarter, diversify, and putting money in safer instruments at the end of the day. Kids are impacted by all of this. More than a dozen charter schools in the Boston area landed with Silicon Valley Bank after a bank merger in 2021. If Silicon Valley Bank is acquired, charter schools will still face a lot of financial questions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. Arlington public school officials say racist and homophobic graffiti was found at the high school. The principal told families about the incident in a letter over the weekend. The graffiti was visible for most of the day in a bathroom Wednesday before school officials were made aware of it. The incident was reported to Arlington police and the city's Human Rights Commission. Our winter has been pretty skimpy on the snow, but apparently it's trying to make up for that in the next 48 hours because we've got a nor'easter on the way. WBR's meteorologist Daniel Noyes joined us earlier and said one thing is clear, this storm won't be a quick hit. It will not, Lisa. This is going to be a longer duration event, a multifaceted storm with rain, snow, wind and waves. This nor'easter is going to have a little bit of everything over the next couple of days for New England. Making up for lost time. Um, How is it Mm -hmm. going to evolve, though? When does it start? So here's the thing. We have some rain showers out there right now. The storm is honestly still in its developing stages. It's going to rapidly intensify south of us later on tonight and pass somewhere over Cape Cod and be a pretty strong storm during the day tomorrow. What that means is it will drag in enough warm air that we're actually going to be rain most of tonight and even into the first part of tomorrow in eastern Massachusetts. The rain snow line will probably dance somewhere around you know, Worcester back and forth a little bit. And then as the storm kind of shifts away just a little brings in enough cold air, the rain will change to snow through the midday to early afternoon from west to east. So I do expect a flip over and some flip-flopping at the coastline tomorrow afternoon. I'd say the height of the storm is tomorrow afternoon and evening for many of us, especially inland. Snowfall rates one to two inches per hour will be possible with blowing and drifting snow at times. When you say inland, uh, where are you talking about? Definitely north and west of Boston. So I think at the coast and for the city itself, we'll flip to snow, but there may still be some rain mixed in and the road temperatures will be mild enough. It won't have an impact at first. Outside of 495, especially on north and west of Boston, that's where we're talking about the worst uh, driving and impact in terms of snowfall. Different story the closer you get to the coast for the wind impacts. Yeah, the wind you say is going to be a hallmark of the storm. How, How strong are you expecting winds to be? It certainly is, especially at the coast. So we've got high wind uh, watches that will be converted to warnings coming up at the coastline. I expect some gusts 50 to 60 miles per hour. uh, And I think those will be pretty numerous. 
It's not out of the question that we get a gust up to 70 miles per hour. I think the greatest chance of that happening would be, you know, somewhere like Gloucester or the tip of Cape Ann and then the outer Cape, which is closest to the storm center. Uh, Either way, I think it's enough that we're going to see some pockets of damage and outages because of the wind at the coast. And then uh, kind of on the reverse side of that, the the snow is going to be wet and pasty. So it's going to cling to everything. So especially where we have over four, five, six inches north and west of Boston, even higher amounts, um, some outages will be likely in those areas because of the wet, pasty nature of the snow. Okay, why don't you give us those accumulation uh, figures right now, as you see it, at least at Absolutely. this point. Absolutely. So I think that a lot of eastern Massachusetts will end up like three to six inches, and that includes for the city of Boston. It'll probably be a little bit less for eastern Essex County, the immediate coast of the south shore of the Cape, maybe coding to an inch or two. Boston, I'd put around, let's say, four inches, four or five, give or take right now. Um, But when it starts to flip, the good news is, you know, I think the roads will be okay for a period. It's when it comes down harder uh, that I think things will get a little bit slick. Now, north and west of Boston, particularly outside of 128 and then 495, the amounts are going to ramp up. So, you know, we're talking six to eight and then 10 over a foot from Worcester with elevation up to Route 2 and southwest New Hampshire. We'll probably see some you know, 15, 16 inch amounts in some communities out in the central part of the state from this. And so when should it wind down by and um, how long might it stick around based on temperatures? So I do think that the back edge of the snow, the steadiest snow, will wind down tomorrow, late evening and overnight. There'll still be some snow around, but it won't be as intense. It'll be lighter. Um, At the coast on Wednesday, there's probably still going to be some scattered snow showers and pockets of snow dancing around. I don't expect a big impact, um, but until the storm kind of fully pulls away from us at the coast, there may still be some lingering snow showers on Wednesday. And you mentioned kind of, you know, the lingering effects. I think we get some melting and refreeze the next several days. So there'll be some continual need for treatment just because we get a little bit of melting during the day with temperatures above freezing and actually in the 40s and then dipping into the 20s and 30s overnight. So so there'll be some icy patches to keep an eye out for kind of each morning as you wake up. I'd like to say it's refreshing and sounds like winter, but it just sounds like winter. <sighs> March nor'easter, nothing like it, right? <laughs> WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyes, thanks a lot. Thanks, Lisa. 40 degrees now in the Boston area with just plain rain so far. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's a documentary making the rounds at screenings around the country that raises serious questions about the safety of millions of children in America. It's a film in the style of a public service announcement called Sextortion, The Hidden Pandemic. But as we're about to hear, NPR has found the documentary could leave viewers with an exaggerated sense of the risk. And experts on child sex abuse and human trafficking fear this first impression could lead to misconceptions about these very serious crimes. Before we continue, a quick note of warning. This next story is about the subject of child abuse, but it does not contain descriptions of abuse or explicit language. Now, what this documentary called Sextortion suggests 
is that strangers on the internet are targeting potentially millions of minors into sharing sexually revealing pictures and videos and often extorting them for money. And in 2020, that number jumped up to 21.7 million cybertip line reports received. In the past seven years that I've been working here, the increase that we've seen and the trends that we've seen is definitely sextortion. That's a clip from the film. It was made in cooperation with several law enforcement agencies. Here's Erin Burke, an agent with Homeland Security Investigations, who was featured in the film. She's speaking at last year's Santa Barbara International Film Festival. This is a, a issue that is happening every single day in every single city across the world, and we're just trying to fight it. It's gotten a lot of play from local TV news as well. Here's a Fox affiliate in San Diego. A special screening of sex torsion, the hidden pandemic, is happening this Thursday. Hard to even watch that. Mm. It's so infuriating. But when NPR's Lisa Hagen started digging into the film, she found some questionable claims. And filmmakers who had not gotten much scrutiny from the government agencies who jumped on the bandwagon. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ari. Start by describing what some of the concerns about this documentary are. Like, how common are these crimes actually? And how common does the film make them out to be? So with any kind of sex crimes, especially involving minors, underreporting is always going to be a problem. And crime researchers will tell you that there's no quality evidence-based statistics on this stuff. One safety alert from the FBI put the number of minor victims in the U.S. at 3,000 last year. And that's a lot of kids. And a dozen cases of those were linked to suicide. But watching this film, experts I talk to worry people are going to walk away believing child sextortion cases number in the millions, which is exactly what one of the filmmakers told people when she got that question at a screening. Here's Maria Peek. When you first face this kind of crime, you have a natural aversion to it. But then you realize, oh, my gosh, this could be happening. Well, at first we thought thousands. Now we know it's millions of children. So what is our responsibility as a filmmakers? It, our responsibility is to investigate it and maybe to say, uh, show it to people in the best kind of way that it's not exploitive but educational. So my reporting found that millions is just not backed up by evidence. The film also contains some highly disputed claims about addiction and autism from one of the featured experts. And it also doesn't include any discussion of something researchers told me was really important. Just over half of the reported instances of sextortion involve someone the victim knows. Stranger danger is what's emphasized in this film. If anyone wants more detailed reporting on this, there's a deep dive on our website, npr.org. So those are the claims that the film makes. Tell us more about how the film was produced, who was behind it. Yeah, so that was my question, especially seeing federal officials promoting it. So I took a quick trip over to Google. I looked up the directors, and what I saw was the last feature film they'd made was a collaboration with a very notorious British conspiracy theorist. He has been banned from entering the EU, and all this really got me wondering about the reach this film was having. So let's listen to some of your reporting about that. We want to get this movie all over the world. And we want it in schools. We want it in classrooms. We want it with teachers. We want it in churches. We want it with parents and grandparents. And we want it with young people. That's the film's executive producer, Opal Singleton, at the premiere at the University of Southern California last fall. The film's creators are a married couple, Stephen and Maria Peake. They both have master's degrees in film and TV from Regent University, 
a conservative Christian university. And since their sextortion film launched, they say they've gotten more than 100 requests for local screenings. Here's Stephen at the premiere. This is my fourth feature documentary, and at almost the end of each one, I have someone who will come up at an event and say, thank you so much for making this movie, because I've been trying to explain this to my friends for years, but now I can just sit them down and say, shut up and watch this for an hour and a half. <laughs> right? The Peaks say their work is journalism and that they're particular about the stories they tell. Stephen says those stories are often about heroes overcoming obstacles for a greater cause. The last documentary they directed, edited, and produced in 2019 is called Renegade, the life story of David Icke. It's an admiring look at a man who's popularized theories that alien reptoids control world events through elites like the British royals and wealthy Jewish families. His numerous books describe anti-Semitic conspiracy theories behind the Holocaust, September 11th attacks, vaccines, and more. Here's Ike describing his work in the film. If you look at the history of the world, it's renegades, by that definition, that are the only people that have ever changed anything. Martin Luther King was a renegade. Gandhi was a renegade. As Ike continues, images of Nikola Tesla, Marie Curie, and Malcolm X flash across the screen. The film itself doesn't make any anti-Semitic claims, but it also never challenges Ike about any of his well-established beliefs. When I interviewed the filmmakers, Stephen Peake said this. I feel, you know, uh, very good about what that movie became. And sometimes people will look at him and say, well, some people say this and some people say that. And I was like, well, have you watched the movie? Because there's nothing... Uh, controversial in the film itself. The Peaks spent a year with Ike, who was the film's executive producer. And Stephen Peaks said they had never heard Ike say anything anti-Semitic, so they didn't include anything about those beliefs in their movie. He said they wouldn't have made the film if Ike had said anything anti-Semitic. There's no reason to believe that the Peaks adhere to Ike's worldview, but in a statement to NPR, the Southern Poverty Law Center cautioned against trusting any journalism that isn't honest about Ike. So how did these filmmakers wind up working with federal and local officials to make a film about sex crimes against children? The project has been a longtime dream of Opal Singleton, the executive producer. She heads a nonprofit in Southern California that educates police and the public about child exploitation. Singleton says she chose the peaks based on in-depth research and another film they'd made about competitive dance. And she says she didn't know anything about their collaboration with David Icke. I've not ever seen anything like that. Uh, I did, you know, see some of their previous. It was like I Dream of Dance, and it was very healthy and like that. And quite frankly, I'm very pleased with what they've done with uh, this particular subject. I pressed Singleton about the filmmaker's use of frightening statistics without much context. I don't really care about your numbers, okay? Right. What I care about is this is very real, it's happening, and it's happening a lot. And I thought, quite frankly, that Stephen and Maria did a great job at telling the story. But good luck to you. I don't agree with what you're doing. Reporting from NPR's Lisa Hagen, who is still with us, um, 
you know, part of your beat is covering conspiracy theories and people who believe in them. And there seem to be certain threads of that running through this story. Draw them out for us. What does this film have to do with conspiracy theories? So let's set aside David Icke and that film entirely. The violation of children and kidnapping them has always played a really central role in conspiracy theories. You see that in anti-Semitism from centuries ago, satanic panic stuff from the 1980s, and today in narratives like QAnon. There's a good reason for that. These are human taboos. They're horrible, damaging. But people who work on these issues with survivors and law enforcement say overhyped claims about strangers or child sex rings can lead to people missing far more common forms of child sex abuse because they're looking for the wrong threats. I talked to this lawyer, Erin Albright. She's a consultant who trains human trafficking task forces for the Department of Justice. And she says child sex crimes are very complex problems. They need a super cautious approach. And she worries about coverage like this lingering with an audience that's learning about a crime for the first time. If they're coming to the documentary with maybe a little bit of background on crimes against children and, and maybe they know that like kidnapping tends to happen more like more familial and maybe they can see through it. But the majority of the public isn't. So I do think that it has a lot of power. Lisa, a lot of prominent law enforcement officials and nonprofits are featured in this film. When you've approached them with your reporting, how have they reacted? Right. The filmmakers list the Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security as partners and claim the agency's unsealed case files for them. But while one U.S. attorney did give the filmmakers an interview about a case she prosecuted, the Department of Justice told us they did not officially partner with the filmmakers. They also denied the Peaks characterization that the case files were unsealed for them. The case in this film was never sealed. As for Department of Homeland Security or Immigration's Customs Enforcement, we haven't gotten agency responses. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children said they will vet their media partners more carefully going forward. One spokesman told us they didn't see why they'd partner with them again. Uh, but overall, they feel like none of the issues we flagged outweigh the good that the film could do. They feel like it's good work. That's NPR's Lisa Hagen. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on Marketplace in just about 10 minutes. In 2018, a bipartisan bill rolled back some of Dodd-Frank's regulating power, and Silicon Valley Bank was among the companies that lobbied for it. We'll have a look at weakened regulations and last week's bank failures. Marketplace starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org tanglewood. On Wall Street, the Dow fell for a fifth day, dropped over just over a quarter percent. The S&P lost 0.15 percent. The Nasdaq gained ground almost a half percent. Cambridge-based Moderna is expanding to the West Coast. The COVID vaccine maker announced Friday it plans to open new offices in San Francisco and Seattle. The locations will work on gene mapping and development of new technology to help scale its business. Moderna is working to produce vaccines for a wider variety of illnesses and plans to add 2,000 jobs worldwide this year. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Winter is about to get in its last licks. There's a nor'easter bearing down on the region. It's due to start as rain tonight, then change over to rain-soaked snow by early tomorrow afternoon. Should intensify later in the afternoon and evening. High winds, in some cases gusts of about 60 miles an hour, could tear down tree limbs and pull down power lines, too. There's also a chance of some coastal flooding on Wednesday. The storm could last until Wednesday in the form of lighter flurries. In the Boston area, now 40 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage, themusicemporium.com. Four months into his third run for the White House, former President Donald Trump is making a trip to the all-important caucus state of Iowa. He is not the first Republican to get FaceTime with Hawkeye voters. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters is in Davenport, Iowa, where Trump was speaking tonight. Hey, Clay. Hello. Hey there. So you're already there at the venue where he's speaking. Paint a picture for us. Yeah, so I'm having some strong deja vu. Uh, People lined around the block early for the event. Uh, It's a beautiful old theater in downtown Davenport, right on the Mississippi River, bordering Illinois. Uh, People are amped up. There are vendors selling T-shirts and blankets. Uh, If if Trump's rallies in the run-up to 16 and 20 elections were a big concert, this kind of feels like the reunion tour. And, And just like the other times he was running, The people coming out to see him now really don't care about uh, the news of him possibly facing criminal charges now. Uh, Here's Laura Oldfather of Davenport and Jim Hout of Bettendorf, who both plan to back Trump in the Iowa caucuses next year. It's noise. I mean, the things they accuse him of, it seems like the Democrats do it tenfold and more. And nothing and ever they just happens. they don't stop. They keep going they and going stop, and going. But they do it and nothing happens to yep. them. But there are signs that he is losing some ground with Iowa Republicans. A Des Moines Register Iowa poll last week showed his support eroding. It says uh, the percentage of Iowa Republicans who say they would definitely vote for him if he were the nominee in 2024 has plummeted by more than 20 percentage points since June of 2021. Now, you were also following along when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis showed up there in Iowa. That was Friday, his, his Iowa debut. He has not declared that he's running for president, but he is making the rounds. How did he pitch himself? Well, it's been interesting to see these different candidates and their styles. DeSantis is very much seen as the best candidate to take on Trump. Polls are kind of showing that. Uh, DeSantis actually shared the stage with Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds. Both DeSantis and Reynolds did much better in last year's midterms than Republicans as a whole. And DeSantis highlighted Florida and Iowa's early COVID policies, including banning mask mandates and opening schools early. Uh, And and folks were responding to his message at the pair of events that I saw him uh, hold comparing him to their own governor, uh, hundreds at both these events. Holly Ann came to his Des Moines uh, rally. I'm definitely ready to see a change in leadership in the Republican Party. And so that's why I wanted to come out and just see what DeSantis had to say. So I'm kind of leaning towards him at this point. She kind of wanted to see him declare at that, at that event. And of course, Iowa is still first for Republicans, which means they have to show up here if they want likely caucus goers to show up for them. But 
Trump is hoping he still has uh, enough built-in support in a likely crowded field. Uh, this morning, he even put out a list of state lawmakers who have endorsed him. And so much, as you know, Clay, from covering campaigns of past has to do with timing and when you show up. Um, this is Trump's first visit to Iowa since he announced he's going to make a run in 2024. It's almost, or I'll ask you, is it almost surprising that he didn't get there sooner? Well, as, as someone who has always or has already been president, I, sh I should say, he's kind of running his campaign as though he's already the nominee. Uh, these other potential contenders that are starting to come to the state are, are going to have to play the traditional caucus campaign style of, of being here a lot, uh, maybe going to all 99 counties if they want to take him on. And if, if history is any guide, uh, Trump will definitely be back uh, with more on this uh, kind of reunion tour. That is Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio. Thank you, Clay. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Celtics are down in Houston to face the Rockets tonight. Boston's looking for its third straight win, but will be shorthanded again. Three players will miss the game, including center Robert Williams. And it was an ugly one for the Sox down in spring training today. They lost to the Blue Jays 16-3. This is 90.9 WBUR. 40 degrees now in the Boston area at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com.